suddenly he sounds like Dark Side. <laughs> whoa, whoa, too much bass, too much bass. Because I'm all about that bass, about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. All about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I was in the middle of coughing and I started to laugh. I was passed out. Back to the bin. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Back to the Bins, mainly because, well, I'm here. But no, I'm just kidding on that. Uh, Somebody had to bring us in. I decided to step up and do it. Welcome to the shameless tie-in, whatever we want to call it, to Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. These guys were nice enough to ask me to be on the show, so I decided to butt my way in and kind of take things over. My name is Michael Bailey. With me tonight is Mr. Scott Gardner. Hi. Mr. Paul Spataro. Hey, you gotta realize Scott gets very butthurt when you don't say the uh, title of the episode right. Shameless, (laughs) obligatory, coattail riding, well, what doesn't... No, I'm not going to make that joke. Hey! Um, <laughs> also with us, as you can kind of hear in the background, almost doing a law. Is the man that just got back from a 15-city tour in Europe with his uh, tribute band to Warrant called Subpoena, uh, Mr. Bill Ro- Dr. Bill Robinson. Yeah, yeah, I had too much cherry pie on my tour. That's why I couldn't get out of that seat in uh, Cyberspace Mountain, so... <laughs> oh, poor Bill. But this time, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about stories involving Superman and Batman, even though there's apparently a bunch of other heroes in the movie. Uh, and of course, to, to, to kick this off, Scott is going to tell us all about how he feels about the film. That That's was a joke. Not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a joke. I'm sorry. See, I, I think I'm going to be more straddling the fence. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, oh, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. But I'm also anticipating it a little bit, hoping for the best. Uh, on the negative end, uh, I think Jesse Eisenberg looks like shit as Lex Luthor. I really just don't like, you know, the, the rumor came up that Brian Cranston was going to play Lex Luthor. And that is like a million times better casting. But, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe when I see the, the movie, I'll, I'll be considering that wrong. The other thing about it that's just got me a little disturbed is they're already talking about a, uh, a secondary release of an R-rated version of it. We haven't even had the original product yet, and they're that's... already trying to market it in a way to, to get us to, uh, to buy the alternate version. So that, that, that raises some, you know, some question marks on me. On the other hand, I didn't think the trailer looked bad. It got me a little excited for it, so... Um, I have very muted anticipation, but I'm still looking forward to it. How about you guys? Eh, if Ben pesters me enough, I'll take him to see it. <laughs> that's that's about my my opinion on it. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I had mixed feelings about the last one. Not not quite as visceral as uh, I felt about the second Star Trek movie, but uh, I don't know. I'll I'll just have to see how busy I am. Uh, I don't know. I'm just not. I'm, I'm just not jazzed. But maybe that's just me. Yeah. 
I, I will admit that the first trailer they released, uh, which I will continue to call the Sad Bastard trailer, uh, it w- did nothing for me. When they released the Comic-Con trailer and I saw a little more footage and I saw that they were actually trying to deal uh, with the issues that were brought up in the first movie, I, I started thinking, eh, it looks a little better. And really it was that third trailer where Bruce Wayne rolls up onto the to the little gala they're at and I and I see on screen Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne talking to each other. Uh, I, I I am I, I remain cautiously optimistic. I'm actually looking more toward, forward to the people that I'm going to go see the movie with uh, and the fact that it's going to be a couple uh, couple podcasters getting together to go see the film. Uh, so, but you know, I, I don't want to sit here and say, oh, it's going to be the greatest movie ever because I don't want to then have to, after I don't like it, have to go back and say, oh man, that really sucked. And I was just completely wrong. So I'm just, I, I like Cavill in the role. Uh, I like the fact that they're actually going for a digitized voice for Batman instead of whatever the hell Christian Bale was doing, uh, in that film. I, uh, I like Amy Adams as Lois Lane, so that's going to be good to see. And, uh, I, I, you know, just uh, uh, as a Superman guy who's had to put up with, like, ten years of Batman, uh, obnoxious Batman fans, let me let me preface that, because not every Batman fan is like that. But every the obnoxious... Bells. Oh, sorry. The Bells Sanctuary. Uh, but every obnoxious Batman fan saying how Batman could take Superman down in five seconds with, you know, with, with his prep and all that watching the sequence of Batman of Superman flying him into a building and throwing him across the roof kind of, kind of got me a little jazzed. The other thing that made me just kind of question a little bit was the fact that they had to reveal doomsday in the trailer, which seemed to me almost to be a little desperate because of the negative press. It was like, you know, we got to show these people something to get them jazzed because so far we're just not, you know, we're not cutting it yet. Uh, but, you know, I was listening to Sean Whalen, who's, you know, DC through and through, and he he's very confident that that isn't the big reveal, that there's going to be more to it, that, you know, they're not showing all their cards yet. So that's got me hopeful also that there's, you know, there's some other big reveals in this movie that are going to be worth seeing. So I, I think if we're characterizing it, we range from Scott, who has... You know, it's virtually hate. You know, <laughs> hoping that this thing fails so that he can potentially get his Superman on screen. Uh, Bill, who's pretty much indifferent about it, and then you and I, who are both cautiously optimistic. So nobody's like straight up. Yeah. Yeah. No, nobody's sitting here well, saying it's going to be the best thing ever. But at least Mike and I have hope that it could be. <laughs> well, you know, Paul, Bob Fisher, Andy Leyland, and I sat down for like, I, you know, I still. Uh, insist we're we're recording that episode uh, for how long it turned out to be. Um, You know, we, we sat down and we were, we were positive about the film, but we, we, it's not like we, you know, lavished, you know, heaps of praise on man of steel because the film did have some serious problems. My main problem with that film continues to be that it was completely unfair to Superman as a character, uh, because this is not something we brought up in the, discussion because it wasn't something I realized at the time but you know if I'm gonna if I'm gonna really nail it down to one thing it's the fact that I'll buy I won't like it but I'll buy the idea that S- Superman showing up 
might not have, uh, you know, and, and doing what he does, he flies, heat stuff, you know, comes out of his eyes, that kind of thing. He's really strong. You know, I, I could see where maybe in this day and age it would be a harder sell. I don't like that idea because deep down I want everyone to just embrace him right away because he's, he's freaking Superman. But I have grudgingly come to go, okay, as long as that's not all the time, as long as he's not Spider-Man, you know, where, where everyone is constantly questioning him, I'm okay with that. But to throw on top of that that his first appearance is when a bunch of other people that are just like him show up and destroy a good section of a major American city. You know, I think at that point you're just, you know, Superman can be a first contact story. I don't think his first story should be a first contact story, if that makes any sense. Because you're, you're putting too much, you're putting him too far behind the eight ball at that point, to the point where it's going to be really hard. It's like, when, when, when you start applying logic to it, and yes, I know we're talking about applying logic to a man from another planet that has heat vision and, and flies and stuff, but if you're, if you're really going to buy into that world, why would they ever trust him, you know? Like, mm -hmm. what? So I'm kind of interested to see how this movie de deals with that. Because I think the mistake would have been to ignore all of it and to just roll on forward. But it seems like, you know, for one thing, they may be using some of David Goyer's ideas, but David Goyer didn't write the script to this. So I know I'm not going to be beaten over the head with, with the themes of the movie. Uh, because God knows in his Batman and Superman films, you know, it's just... I swear to God, if you played a drinking game for Batman Begins of every time they said the word fear, you would die of alcohol poisoning 45 minutes into the film. Uh, just because they keep repeating it over and over and over again. But Drink to me! Drink to me! Oh, sorry. <laughs> but, now I'm thinking of a Les Mis song. Very nice. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> I was but, of a Paul McCartney and Wings song, but okay. But, uh... But, you know, so, but I think that's because of that, you know, to go to Bill's point, I'm not jumping up and down like I am, say, for Civil War, which, you know, I've had two films to get me completely sold on that character and the people responsible for him. Yeah, I've got a weird little, uh, I guess, ob observation. I don't know about you guys, but I'm more jazzed for Marvel movies right now than I am DC movies. But yet, on the TV side, I'm more jazzed for DC TV shows than I am Marvel TV shows. And I don't know if that's because DC has decided to keep their TV separate from their movies, and Marvel has not, so they're kind of limited with what they can do. Because it seems like they're going crazy with pulling in heroes and villains over on the DC TV side as, as compared to the slower pace that Marvel TV seems to move at. Do you guys see any of that, or... I know all of us here don't watch all the all the shows. I, I think it has to do with the fact that Marvel set their plate, uh, or excuse me, set their table at in the cinema. So really, how do you add to that? Hmm. Does that make any sense? Like, like they, they're throwing all of their superhero, you know, with the exception of Daredevil and, and the Netflix shows, they're throwing all of their superhero stuff onto the screen. So that kind of limits them with, you know, they're, they're not going to do a Captain America television show. They're not going to do an Iron Man television show. They're, they should be doing a Hulk television show because they're not really capitalizing on that character like I think they should. But that's just because I'm a Hulk guy. Uh, but whereas DC really is, is, you know, and this isn't a pejorative, but they're lagging behind in, in the movie department. 
So their TV thing has caught on to a certain extent. You know, with with Arrow, I, I would say starting in the second season, it started to embrace its comic book roots a little more, which led into The Flash, which wholeheartedly embraced its comic book roots, uh, which led into Supergirl, which is one of my favorite comic book television series of all time. With what they have brought into that show, you could have knocked me over with a feather when I'm watching Supergirl walk through the Fortress of Solitude, which she got into <laughs> with a giant freaking key and walked by a Legion ring, and then Kellex rolls up and says hi. I'm just like, holy crap, this is everything yeah. I've ever wanted to see, you know? So so I think well, that's where they're, they're kind of winning that battle on television, at least. Well, plus they've got the Martian Manhunter and... Yeah. and- and 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 on Flash, they've they've got Earth, you know, Earth One and Earth Two, although slightly different from the comic Earth Two. But but they've but they're but they're exploring the idea of the multiverse, and they're going to actually cross over with uh, the Flash and Supergirl, which is just uh, awesome. I love it. And I and I think it also shows how fragmented Warner Brothers is as an entertainment company, that their television. Uh, programming is doing so well and i'll throw i zombie into that which is a show i rather oh, like that, um, i like that show too yep um it's got a really good premise it's not a superhero show but it's based on a dc book it's really so, a kind of a it's a procedural show but the procedural seems to always work into the overall plot line mm-hmm. of the other characters so and the main bad guy this season is the little squirrely dude that was Frank Castle's snitch in the uh, Thomas Jane Punisher film. How the <laughs> hell does that happen? <laughs> but uh, but it's just I think it shows fra- how fragmented the WB is that their movie people aren't looking at what the TV people are doing and how people are responding to it and going not so much let's completely copy that, but it's just like oh look this is what millions of people want to watch and maybe they. And maybe they think that doesn't translate into the big budget, but how how much cognitive dissonance do you have where you look at how successful the Marvel movies are, and you look at how successful the DC television series are, and the commonality between the two is that they have embraced the source material, mm-hmm. sometimes slavishly so, and that's what people really seem to like about it, and yet they're still going, yeah, well, that's okay for TV, but for movies, we got to do something different. I will never understand that thinking. And I just killed the conversation. You did. Long live <laughs> the conversation. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, you, you, you sparked an idea in my head, though. Like, if Marvel has made a determination that the Hulk is not to be having any more solo films... Why wouldn't you put a TV series on? Mm-hmm. Unless unless the special effects would be, you know, just to the point where they can't be cost effective. I think there's, I read something that I think there's a rights issue there somewhere. But, I mean, the Hulk's not off the table because this next Thor film, Thor Ragnarok, um, is from everything I'm reading about it is basically, I, I've heard that it's going to be uh, like a cosmic... Uh, Planet Hulk? Buddy Road picture, so... You know, the Hulk's supposed to to play heavily into that movie, you know, much like, you know, Captain America Civil War is almost seeming like it's misnamed at this point because it's, you know, yeah, sure, Cap's in it, but it's it's basically it's, you know, it's another 
it's a Marvel movie with like pretty much everybody's going to be in this one, with the exception, I believe, of of Thor and the Hulk. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, uh, the next Thor film comes along and there you go. Then we get the explanation of where Thor and Hulk have, have gone off to with that. So, you know, while, you know, we probably won't get any Thor or excuse me, Hulk solo films for a bit. Um, I mean, he's not, you know, he's not not being used. You know, he's not um, just off the table. And I know they have bandied about the idea of uh, of a new TV show for him because I, I was reading about that not long ago. But you know, for whatever reason, they decided not to go that route. And if it's because you know they have big movie plans for him, then you know, while I'm with Mike, that it'd be nice to see a new Hulk TV show and everything. At the same rate, you know, if it's going to play into something um, with the movies and all, then I'm I'm okay. I'm content to wait to see how that pans out, so long as it does pan out. But so so we could have like a Hulk CSI show and he'll walk up and do a, <laughs> a one liner and put some sunglasses on. No? no, no, he doesn't put on sunglasses. He just looks at the camera. His eyes go white and the who starts playing. <laughs> OK, somebody really needs to make this happen for me personally. I would I would consider it a favor at this point. You can just get a shot of Bill Bixby. <laughs> Just when he's changing, all right. See you next week, everybody. Oh, that wasn't the end of the show. But you know what is awesome? Comics with Superman and Batman in it. Love comics with Superman <laughs> and Batman. You know what I love? I love comics with Superman and Batman where they don't actually fight each other. We're their buddies. I, I think that's how it should be. But... Yeah, that's that's the one thing. I didn't mind Burns' take on it where they kind of had to develop the friendship. You know, they weren't instant buddies. But I don't like the idea of them being, you know, opposed to each other. Except, of course, you know, they may... Uh, we're going to see how the film plays out. They may start out as enemies and, you know, in typical Marvel team-up fashion, uh, you know, be friends before it's over. And it looks like it, it definitely might be that. I, I, I'm willing to... I'm willing to bet that that is how it's going to turn out. And that's really, you know, that, that even kind of plays into the book that I chose to bring to the episode tonight uh, of, 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 of the relationship Superman and Batman had um, in the, uh, in the post-crisis era where it wasn't, it wasn't as adversarial as some writers would portray it, but it wasn't like they were buddy, buddy from the very beginning. And, and, and Byrne was the one that kind of put that, you know, flag in the ground. And said, you know, the, you know, this is how it's gonna, this is how it's gonna be. They're not gonna be friends. There's gonna be some trust issues, but there's gonna be some kind of mutual respect going on. Hmm. But but I want that respect, and hopefully we'll see it in the movie. Well, three of us, two of us will see it. The other two may may not. Who knows? <laughs> uh, how do you want to do these books tonight? Do you want to start in uh, chronological order, or do you want to go some other route? I like the idea of chronological. I think that works. What I like when we do chronological is it almost always lets me go first because I, I always pick the old crotchety books. I don't think you get accused of anything of what you've chosen tonight as being either old or crotchety. Well, maybe old, but not crotchety. <laughs> okay, well, that still works for me. So what I, what I decided to do is I thought, let me go, not to the first time they ever met each other in the comics, but to the story of their first meeting which 
was in Superman number 76, which came out in May slash June of 1952. So they had been co-starring in World's Finest by this time for quite a while. But this was, like I said, the origin of the friendship. And it has a cover by Wynne Mortimer. It shows Lois Lane on a roof of a burning building as Batman swings in from one side while Superman flies in from the other, both declaring that it's a job for them. But I think uh, I think they might have different ideas. Is this? And they smash right into each other. Watch out for that tree. Batman looks like he's swinging in to grab her, but Superman looks like he's ready to punch her in the head. <laughs> Batman's going to grab... Well, never mind. I won't say what he's going to grab. Anyway, the, the title of this episode, this issue is called The Mightiest Team in the World, and it's written by Edmund Hamilton, penciled by Kurt Swan, even as far back as 1952, inked by Stan Kay and John Fischetti, and edited by Mort Weisinger. Splash page so shows the super comet giant train bearing down as Superman holds it back with one hand, while Batman swings in ready to cause his own damage to Lois, who has her ankle stuck in the rail, and he's going to grab her and rip her foot clean off at the ankle as he pulls her away from the uh, from the train. But since Superman could hold the train back, you would think he would just calmly go and help her release her ankle, but whatever. So the story opens... He'll with- just heat vision the metal. <laughs> I was going to say he's going to heat vision her foot off at the ankle, but... <laughs> well, at least it'll cauterize it. So the story opens with Batman and Robin Robin capturing a wanted bandit killer named Gell, who happens to be the last criminal on the Gotham City wanted list. Having cleared Gotham of all its no-good nicks, Robin decides to visit relatives up excuse me, previously unheard of relatives upstate, and Bruce decides to go to on a coastal cruise. Meanwhile, in Metropolis, Superman delivers a completely assembled dinosaur fossil to the Hall of Learning and goes out on a date with Lois and talks about how he is also coincidentally going on the same cruise. So the following day, Lois goes to see Clark off. It turns out that the ship is overbooked and they have to double up passengers. And they put Bruce and Clark together, causing them both to worry about the other figuring out their secret identities, clearly not expecting this to be a truly restful vacation. So, as if on cue, a man on the docks fires an incendiary bullet at a fuel truck while wearing an asbestos suit so that he can steal the Fabian diamonds. And, just to make things worse, Lois blundered her way into the fire and is trapped in its flames. While would, the this guy is going, the, would, hmm? the guy, would the guy in the asbestos suit die of lung cancer a few years later? Quite possible. Mes- mesothelioma or something along those lines. Mm. Oh, that, that, that's his name, Captain Mesothelioma. <laughs> and I only make that joke because I've made jokes about that in the past and have gotten ripped apart by re- by listeners. So I want to see if I can continue that trend. Well, if send all all mail to views at the long box, <laughs> views from the long box. Uh, anyway, while this is going on, Bruce and Clark are in their cabin, and Bruce gets weird right away. Suggests that they turn off the lights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's going to make the average guy comfortable. No, uh, I'm tired too. Mm. Anyway, they both see this as an opportunity to change to their alter egos and address the situation outside. Wait, 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 wait. How many beds are in that room? <laughs> One single. Uh, so, uh, as with all such... No, no, no. On the, previous, on the previous page, you see two beds. Okay. 
So, okay. as with all such well-thought-out plans, they both see each other immediately, and goodbye secret identities. They agree to worry about that later and head out, where Superman puts out the flames while Batman rescues Lois. They decide, or they deduce, that the thief must have boarded the ship to escape. The two heroes agree to keep each other's secrets and get permission from the ship's captain to investigate. Of course, nosy body Lois also gets permission to follow the story. Clark feigns seasickness and Bruce says that he's going to take care of him so that they can act as Superman and Batman. They come up with a plan for Batman pretending to fall for Lois to occupy her. At this point, there's a pretty silly scene where Superman lifts, lifts the ship with one hand in order to make the cruise more smooth. Tearing the ship. If by silly pieces. you mean awesome. No, I mean the ship would have just crushed into several pieces if you even tried to do that. But that's besides the point. That's what I mean. So Superman sees a man with a concealed gun. He tells Batman, who goes to question the man, and believes that he is their man. That evening, Batman is asked to perform stunts for the passengers, which he does. Superman then juggles three icebergs, and Lois pretends to be bored by him. While this silliness is going on, the man that they suspect attempts to escape by helicopter and takes Lois as a hostage. But before he did that, he sabotaged the ship's turbines, which is a real problem due to an impending storm. However... Ever resourceful, Superman throws Batman at the helicopter while he tows the ship to safety. Batman clunks two thieves' pilot. I would love to see just, hmm? just <laughs> it just turns into Batman like Batman puree. It's just like <laughs> that's that's what I keep picturing. His aim is so good, he gets him right on it. Like, there's a lot. Of, there's a couple of blades on that thing that are going pretty fast. Especially that cape would get sucked right up into that. <laughs> <laughs> no like, cape. Mr. like Mr. Incredible. <laughs> so Batman no goes in there and, and clunks the thief and the pilot's heads together like super, like like George Reeves on the Adventures of Superman, and he rescues Lois. So now, with the crime solved, the only problem is that Golden Age Lois is always secret identity suspicious. In order to protect Bruce's identity, Superman flies him to Gotham so that there is news of his being sighted away from the ship. And Bruce uses his wonderful skill in disguising to dress as Clark so that Superman can greet them as they disembark the ship. And fools Lois with that. <laughs> go, go figure. Have, having accomplished their, uh, their secret identity charade, they decide to find out who Lois really prefers, only to have her go out with Robin. The cradle wah, Robin. Wah, wah, wah. The end. Robin's like, yeah, man. I'm going to get me some tonight. I hear this Lois is easy. Easy I'm in like the, Sunday morning? I'm in yes. the fast lane. Oh, sorry. Two things that I would love to see the alternate takes on this is uh, on page four, that third panel, where uh, <laughs> where Bruce turns off the lights and then he spots Superman through the, the light coming through the portal. I'd love to see one where, it's, where he's going, why, you're... You're Superman, and Superman's saying, and and you're naked, ah! And I'd love also love to see one where he's saying, why, you're Superman, and Superman's going, and you're a dead man. <laughs> no, I don't have to worry about my secret identity, because I'm going to use my laser vision to fry your brain. <laughs> now, my uh, I would suspect that, Mike, you and I have the same experience with this, having first read the story in Superman from the 30s to the 70s. Absolutely. This is one of the first Superman comics I ever read. Uh, so it's it, it I will always love it because of that because I, I think that it's a it's a fun story 
you know, we could sit here and, and for all I know, we probably will. Uh, we could sit here and pick it apart on a logic level. Why the hell would Bruce Wayne, the, the world's richest man, you know, say, ah, okay, I'll just, you know, hang out with this, you know, commoner. And, you know, just, just the whole wackiness of them trying to, you know, conceal each other's identity. But it's just, it's so fun. Yeah. And it's and it's so of its era. And they're working together. And, you know, they're on the case. And, and like you said, this isn't the first time they ever worked together. I mean, that goes back to the radio show. Uh, where you can hear one episode where they do the exciting thing of build a brick wall in Clark's apartment. Ooh. I'm not. I'm not even kidding on that. They they get Is that together. A euphemism? No, no, no. It's not. They literally build a brick wall. It's. Uh, it's. It was actually oddly enough. It's the original version of the stolen costume, uh, which was later adapted into the television series. Uh, one of the main differences is that Batman wasn't on the television series, which I think would have made it more awesome. But uh, you know and. If you want a snarky take on this, read the first Superman Batman annual from 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. Because Joe Kelly retells this story and involves, you know, the Earth, th- the uh, the crime syndicate characters and a character that's not Deadpool, but is Deadpool. So, and, you know, I, I, I'd sit here and make fun of the fact that Lois is about to turn Robin into a man. But uh, I think the Leylands did a pretty good job of that. <laughs> Uh, when they covered this epi- this issue, but no, it's it's got fantastic art. Uh, I love that you know, even though it's not the greatest detective work, Batman's still trying to figure out the angles. I love the idea that Lois has these two figured out and is just playing them. I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff here. Yeah, they, they, they're both. When it comes to dealing with Lois, they're both kind of foolish. <laughs> they just, they're just so silly in how they approach it. You know, you pretend to like her. <laughs> So that, so that I can go investigate. Uh, but like, I think, you know, you, you hit it right on its head when you say it's of its time. You know, this is 1952. Comic books were different then. And with, you know, when you look at it from that perspective, it is awesome. Superman's juggling icebergs. I'm surprised he wasn't dressed as Meccano, the world's most mighty robot. <laughs> that would have been awesome. I would have loved to see Superman in a clown makeup hanging out with the circus. Though you would think that a lot of uh, luxury liners would not want icebergs anywhere near their ship. How yeah, big was... is that room that he's juggling them in? <laughs> <laughs> and I was worried about making that joke for a second, but Scott hasn't jumped down my throat, so I assume no, that's I, okay. I, I had the same thought as well. I was like, that's, you know, of course it's been 40 years by this point, but still. That's true. But, I, you know, the part of the story that's actually stands out to me you know amongst all the other things you've got going on here all you know a flying man and you know guy dressed as a bat and all this other crazy stuff the thing that actually stands out to me in this story is right at the beginning of this story where uh, it says but seconds later a dismaying surprise and you've got the guy saying i'm sorry mr kent but the ship's so crowded i'll have to put you with another passenger i just can't quite get past that I mean, did this actually happen back then? Because I can't imagine that happening today. Mr. Without... Wayne, you're the richest man in the world. We're going to put you in steerage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, that that seems very bizarre to me. I'm wondering if there's actually precedent for that. You know, did did that ever actually happen? Because, I mean, is this, I'm assuming that this is like a pleasure cruise, right? It's so a if vacation. it's a pleasure cruise. It's yeah, not, you know, this wasn't a business trip or anything. 
you know, so what if what if Ken's like, well, you know, I was really hoping to get laid on this trip. You know, can can I maybe you have talk, a you, you put a sock on the door? That's you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, just I don't know. That just seems kind of wacky to me. But you know what? When I when I first read this in Superman from the 30s to the 70s, I was probably 10 years old, 11, 12, somewhere in that range. Right. None of that bothered me. Right. You know? So comics in 1952 were not meant for 40-year-old men. <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> they were meant for 12-year-old boys. And it was fine from that perspective. I really didn't have any problem with it. Even though by the time I read this, comic books... You know, current comic books in that era were more sophisticated than this. You know, we were deeply in the Bronze Age with Marvel, but this still didn't bother me. I read it and I was enthralled by it. I loved it. I still love it. Speaking of things you were bothered by or not bothered by, so you're bothered by him flying with the ship in one hand. Totally off balance, by the way. It's silly. Well, then you didn't mention anything about where he's actually dragging the ship by one hand by holding on to the bow. Would that not rip the front of the ship right off? Yeah, yes, you're, you're, you're correct. I didn't mention that. And yes, you're correct. It's equally silly. <laughs> you know, it's funny you should mention that because, Mike, wasn't that pretty much in a... Uh, that was in one of the episodes of Supergirl this season where she's yeah. trying to move a ship with her mm-hmm. w- w- with her bare hands and she rips rips open the front of it on right, like right at the bow. I think it started to leak oil and everything. Yeah, and... It, it, it was kind of like a Superman three moment, except she did it on she did it in an accident and not hopped up on you know yeah. synthetic kryptonite. Yeah, See, I, I was too busy. Skip- I was too busy pointing out that he was throwing Batman to his certain death in, in <laughs> the blades of the helicopter <laughs> to focus on the fact that he was tearing his apart at the same time. This is my fr- this is my first team up with Batman. We will become great friends. We will. <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> and then it I wonder where that green arrow Robin. is. <laughs> and then it cuts to him to go to Robin, going, "Man, I don't know what happened. Batman just flew at the, that helicopter on his own." <laughs> Here is a hastily scribbled suicide note that is a but it's the Batman. I have noticed over the years, I mean, I haven't read a hell of a lot of uh, of World's Finest, but, you know, I have noticed a number of Batman-Superman team-ups over the years where Batman should have been killed a, a, a dozen different times in each story. You know, because he's, let's face it, he's kind of out of his weight class when he's teaming up with Superman, of all people, you know? It's one of those things, though, that is both the the strength of Superman as a character, but, you know, when you when you actually want to start talking about it, you, you do have to kind of look sideways at it going, what? Um, the great thing about Superman is that Superman... With with few exceptions, and I and I think the the Justice League cartoon had one of the best examples of him looking at the rest of the Justice League and going, "Do you guys realize how much I have to pull back because of you?" Which you would you would understand him feeling that every once in a while, but you know, Superman at his best teams up with non powered people and never makes them feel like they're any less of a hero than he is. Yes, yes, vigilante, you and your six gun and me, we're equal. <laughs> you know. Well, they're not, but there's a difference between not being equal and being a prick about it and not being equal and just like, you know, knowing that they have their strengths as well. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you're teaming, I would not want to be a non-powered hero teaming up with Superman. That would scare the living crap out of me. You know, if Superman is necessary for this adventure, obviously I am not except for crowd control. 
you know, and, and, and that's basically, it's like, okay, everybody, move along. It's, it's, like, it's like that episode of Justice League Unlimited where Booster Gold was just telling people to stop and go and all that. that that's kind of, you know, when, when more Drew's going crazy, Batman isn't really necessary when you really think about it. And the thing I always come back to when, when people talk about, oh, Superman and Batman fought, besides all, all of the other things Superman can do, I just think, hmm, super speed. <laughs> you know, like, what's Batman going to do that Superman can't counter? You know, even, even the argument of, oh, he could have kryptonite or something. Okay, so Superman goes far enough away and then uses his laser vision to, to just burn Batman's brain to, you know, he's done. Sorry. There's no battle there. And, and, and uh, yeah, and I've always had that kind of problem with it as well, because if you look at the fights that Batman and Superman have had, the commonality between all of them is that on some level, Batman has managed to weaken him. So, I mean, best example of that is the fight in Dark Knight Returns. Okay, not only is Batman armored up, which gives him a slight advantage, we're talking about a Superman that had to come back from near death after surviving being at the center of a nuclear detonation. Then in the middle of that, crazy whack job Ollie Queen is shooting kryptonite <laughs> arrows at him. And that's weakening him further. So it's not like Batman walked up to Superman, hit him in the face, and won. He had to do all of these things. So... If the, if the question is, could Batman beat Superman in a fight, the answer always is yes, but it's not exactly a fair fight because it has to you have to bring Superman down or bring Batman up. It's not like Batman versus Richard Dragon, you know, or, no, you know. I'm, I'm going to like argue that. that point that you can't bring Batman up enough. You have to bring Superman down. If Superman is at his normal level, you cannot bring Batman up high enough to beat him. Yeah, I, I see that. My, my, my point with bringing Batman up is making him as powerful as Superman, like synthetically giving him the same powers, essentially, if that makes any sense. I guess. But I just, I, I, I find it disturbing that more often than not, when they write fights between the two of them, Batman wins. And it's just silly. Well, you know, the best thing about Superman is when he gets knocked down, he gets up again. Because you're never, never going to bring gonna... him down. Because <laughs> he gets knocked down. And he gets up again. I mean, just like almost immediately. You're never going to bring this man down. That's why I like it when Mike's here. <laughs> I get you. <laughs> you complete me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Let's go get some Chinese Cajun. <laughs> hey, dude. Hey, that was great. I'm still thinking about that. Mm-hmm. But we tangent. So... Any any other points in this one? Because we got three other books to cover. Did they always draw Batman so buff, like on page five? Oh yeah, he always looks more more buff than Superman. Like he's you got look, way wider chest there. You look at like that. Uh, God, what was that? Um, it's not only Wynn Mortimer. Who was the main like one of the main Batman artists? Don't say Bob Kane because I think that's been. <laughs> to a certain extent disproven that if it was signed by Bob Kane, it wasn't always Bob Kane. That's not me insulting Bob Kane. That's me pointing out the fact that other it's, people drew Batman. It's just pointing out reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like uh, Shelley Moldoff would draw, or I think that's who I'm thinking of. Would They, they always drew him as like this barrel-chested man. It was really, I'm going to say Neil Adams that kind of brought him back down to being kind of a lithe figure. 
because even Carmine Infantino, when he drew him in the uh, 60s, Batman was, you know, more of a boxer than a martial artist, in, in his build, at least. Battling Jack Murdoch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I guess, is, uh, is Scott up next? Well, I guess, no. First, we got to give our ratings on this thing. Oh, yeah, that's right. So Maybe if I listen to the show, it would help. I'm going to... Uh... I'm going to go through it fairly quickly. I think this is absolutely an iconic cover, uh, as as borne out by the fact that I've seen it on sale on the uh, on those you know those wooden plaques recently. So and and it's uh, it's iconic to me anyway, and I just think it's a great cover. I'm going to give it the cover an A. Uh, the story is silly, but it's of its time so well, and it's just out and out fun. Uh, I'm going to take a slight bit off the silliness, but I'm going to go B-plus on the story. And art-wise, solid, tells the story, gets everything across. Uh, I'm going to say a B-plus on that as well. And I'm going to give it overall an A-minus. Next. Um, I'll, I'll agree. I'll agree with your ratings, like, overall. Uh, I, th- I think the, the cover is definitely one of those iconic ones that, you know, that has been with me since I was a little kid. So it's kind of hard, you know, it's hard to let go of something like that when it means so much to you. And but but the story itself, even factoring in, you know, because the Silver Age, uh, I, I really have to I'll, I'll give it a B as well. Uh, and, and, and the art as well, because sometimes, I don't know, sometimes Superman doesn't look as cool as I think he should. Batman's pretty consistent. Superman's a little off in places. I'm, I'm going to just comment though that this would be pre-silver age this would be still golden age technically you're right uh i don't know why i always the reason why i consider it kind of silver age is because i put this in the same level as like the the super key to fort superman mm-hmm. okay Bill so, scott did did mike give letter grades yep okay um let's see all right going with the cover um, it is an iconic cover. I'm not crazy about it, but I would imagine that, uh, you know, if you were a, a kid, you know, a little kid in, uh, in 1952 and see this, you know, where, where it does look, you know, and it builds it right there on the cover. Like these guys are actually meeting and, and interacting and everything in the issue. I can imagine that that would be, you know, pretty exciting stuff. So, um, I think I would go with a uh, I think I'd go with a B minus on the cover just because I, I think it could be a little more dramatic than it is and I like where they kind of balance team ups like this. I remember all the the difficulty that um, Marvel and DC went through when they had uh, Superman and Spider Man meet for the first time, for example. You know, one figure couldn't be bigger than the other or more in the foreground or, or more of his body shown or something like that. And Superman, you know, we're not seeing all of Superman, uh, you know, on the cover of his own magazine, you know, it's, it's, you know, but all of Batman is there. So just, you know, if they'd balanced that a little bit more, but it is a dynamic cover and I, and I do like it. I just think there's a little bit of room for improvement. Um, I really like the interior art, although I will agree with Paul that I, I do think that, uh, I'm sorry. I think it was Mike actually that said, that sometimes the that Superman's a little off. Um, you know, some of the faces on Superman just look a little bit funny. I'm looking in particular at the bottom of page eight, that last panel where uh, Lois is coming onto Batman, and Superman just I don't know, he just looks kind of dopey or something. It's kind of a funny expression on his face. But overall, I'm really because he's sad. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But overall, I'm really taken with the art here because I like that. 
you know, the the for the most part, it looks like a, a pretty standard Superman story from this era. And then you have like Bob Kane's Batman, um, you know, kind of interjected into the story. And that's neat, you know, because that's not something I really think of, you know, having having happened a long time ago. You know, this this puts me in mind of, say, like when um, John Byrne and George Perez teamed up to do Action Comics 600 you know, with uh, or was that 500? No, 600. It was 600 with uh, Superman and Wonder Woman, where Perez did all the Wonder Woman stuff because he was the artist on Wonder Woman at the time and Byrne did pretty much everything else. Yet they made it blend and they made it work. I really like that. And that this kind of puts me in mind of that. And uh, I think that's neat. You know, you're basically seeing Batman as he looked at the time in Superman's world. And that's kind of cool. I like that. I like that approach to the art. So um, on the art itself, I think I would go, uh, I think I'd go a, a straight, uh, I could go a B plus on it. Again, I think there's some room for improvement. Superman just looks, his face more than anything looks a little off model from time to time. But otherwise, I really like the art. Um, it could be a little more polished, though. There, some of it's a little too simplistic. Uh, in particular, the helicopter just looks like, you know, somebody really didn't spend a heck of a lot of time drawing the, the helicopter. There could be more detail there. Um, the story, oh, it's always hard for me to grade stories, you know, like from this time, because it's hard sometimes to kind of put your mind back to, okay, this was done for kids. It's not meant to make a hell of a lot of sense. And, you know, it's not meant to appeal to, you know, someone of my age and everything. But at the same rate, I like a story, no matter who it's meant for, to have a certain amount of logic and follow a certain logic train you know and there's a lot of stuff in this that's just kind of dopey but it is fun at the end of the day it is a blast to read and i I do get a kick out of it and everything so i think with the story i'm just going to go a middle of the road c it's kind of average for its time so overall i think that averages out to like a like a b minus which i you know i think is a fair grade for for what it is Hmm. um for me the cover this is the first time that I've actually read this particular story. Um, I do, th- looking at the cover, I would say that it, you know, you guys are saying that it's iconic, and I and I can see that. Uh, for me, though, I'm I'm still just going to give this one a, a B, maybe a B plus. Um, the interior art, I, now that you pointed it out, I do see that where like Batman is drawn in a different style. I guess the style he would be in at. At, at the you know during this during this time frame, so that is kind of a nice touch onto it. Um, uh, Superman's face didn't really bother me too much, you know, like kind of like he was showing some expressions. Um, I guess the helicopter might be a little simplistic, but I mean the ship looks kind of plain as as well. But I, I guess for the art overall. Um, it's going to be a B as well. The story, one thing in the story that we didn't talk about is where where the guy hid the diamonds because one of the big things was they couldn't find the diamonds. And the diamonds were hidden inside the lead bullets, which is why Superman couldn't find them. And Batman figured that out when um, when he didn't get pureed by being thrown at the helicopter. <laughs> just the guy wouldn't shoot him. And, you know, he's... He's like, I can't shoot him. Just throw him off, and that's when you know Batman figured out where the diamonds were. So that was a nice little 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 thing in there. And and and, and for that, I'm going to bump the story up to a B plus. So overall, I would say B plus for this book. All right. So that's the origin of the Superman Batman team. 
or one of them. Yes, <laughs> one of probably many. But uh, I, I, I think if you listen to a past episode of Back to the Binge, you can hear Scott and I talking about like a story that had like three of them in it. Yep. If you didn't mention that, I was going to. Yeah, that was World's Finest. What issue was that? Two? Was it two hundred? No, it was like two. Uh, let me. I'll, I'll look that up really quick. Yeah, uh, it might bam. be a funny number. But yeah, the the whole purpose of that story was for um, the writer, who I think was Roy Thomas, mm-hmm. to try to make sense of all the many first meetings of Batman and uh, Superman, trying to put them, um, you know, in some sort of context and everything. But and, and well, he brought in the the what is the Adam Man? Adam the Man, yeah, from the radio. Yeah, that's a great issue. I just can't remember the uh, the the. Number. It's one of the anniversary ones because it has a really yeah. cool cover to it yeah uh because they took a break from the it's 271 271 that's right Uh, because they took a break from the anthology thing that world's finest had been doing right because because at first i thought it was world's finest 250 but that's the one with the creeper and green arrow and wonder woman and all them on the cover uh but 271 has that beautiful george perez cover of Superman, Batman, and Robin tearing through covers of their early uh, team ups, right? Uh, and you know you can't you can't go wrong with with Rich Buckler drawing these characters. <laughs> I don't well, think Congress to, would let that happen. We're about to talk about that very thing. You know, I hadn't put that together until you looked up that issue, Mike. But we're uh, the issue I brought to the table is actually just two issues prior to that, mm-hmm. so. Uh, my issue for this time around is World's Finest number 269. It's the uh, June slash July cover dated issue 1981. It was actually on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, uh, March 5th of 1981. Cover by one of my favorite Superman artists, Rich Buckler, with inks by probably my favorite Superman inker, Dick Giordano, although there are other uh, Superman inkers that I'm quite enamored of as well, like uh, Carl Kessel. Um, It depicts Superman alighting in a graveyard to tell Robin the teen wonder that he can't find Batman anywhere, while the book's other co-stars, Green Arrow, Hawkman, Red Tornado, and Buckler favorite Captain Marvel, none of whom are actually in the story we're going to be looking at, by the way, uh, while those heroes look on. We, the readers, of course, see the Batman fighting for his life entombed beneath their feet. And uh, this is back when DC had a number of dollar comics, and this was in World's Finest dollar phase. So I, I just love some of the cover copy here. It says, you know, up at the top, no ads, nonstop cover to cover action, Superman, Batman, Robin, Shazam, because they couldn't call him Captain Marvel on the cover, Green Arrow, Hawkman, Red Tornado, and uh, again, just a gorgeous cover by Buckler. I really, really like this one. I can't remember. You know what? I was going to say, I can't remember if this is a wraparound cover, and I've got this the thing right here in plastic next to me. Let me open this up. I'm curious if this is a wraparound, because a lot, nope, this one is not. A lot of the world's finest from this time, though, were wraparound covers. This particular issue is not. Anyway, original cover price, as I said, a whopping whole dollar on this one. We're looking at just the Superman-Batman story, of course, the world's finest story, which is entitled Buried Alive. Buried Alive. I knew he was going to do that. That's why I waited. <laughs> well, if, if 
If he didn't, I was. Yeah, I was about to say. There's. <laughs> oh, I thought that was you, Bill. <laughs> was that Mike? That was Mike. And I, I muted my mic just to keep to force myself to have self control and not do it. I knew somebody would would do. I thought it would be Bill. <laughs> I have an interesting buried alive story that I can tell after you re- review the book. Okay, you were buried alive once. Well, we'll uh, we'll we'll wait till we get to it. Okay. Well, then I'll, I'll get the real life with Dr. Bill Robinson music ready. <laughs> All right, written by Jerry Conway with pencils by the aforementioned Rich Buckler, uh, inks by Frank McLaughlin, lettered by John Costanza, and colorist was Carl Gafford. Our story begins on a stark yet beautiful splash page that served as the cover for my childhood copy of this mag. More on that later. The copy proclaims your two favorite heroes, Superman and Batman, in one adventure together. And gosh, you know, how I wish we were getting a movie with that as the tagline. But anyway, enough on that sort of thing. The Batman awakens to the certainty that he must still be dreaming, but slowly the sick reality sets in and the masked Manhunter realizes that he has been buried alive. Feeling the incredible crushing weight of the Earth itself pressing down and in on all sides, Batman fights down his fear and urge to panic, calms his mind, remembers his training, and begins to work the problem, intent on escape. In Gotham, uh, in the Gotham Police Headquarters, one scary mad Man of Steel tells Commissioner Gordon that he is not happy. Superman's partner and best pal, the Batman, is missing, and Gordon's police force can't seem to locate him. Gordon, not intimidated, retorts that for the first time since he's known him, and that seems strange to me. The Dark Knight detective isn't answering the bat signal or his private hotline. Gordon, likewise, is very concerned. So concerned that he tells Superman that he'll, quote-unquote, go to Hades before I let you lecture me, which I really liked. I like that he stood up to Superman. That takes some balls. Superman, rebuked, apologizes to Gordon and tells him he's not accustomed to feeling helpless. Just then, Robin the Teen Wonder arrives and reports that Uh, He's had no more luck than they have in locating their friend. They are interrupted when Gordon receives a phone call from the chief of police over in Metropolis. Apparently, some weirdo is up on the Metropolis Bridge claiming responsibility for the Batman's disappearance and is holding the crime fighter hostage, demanding Gotham and Metropolis pay a combined ransom of 10 million bucks or the Batman dies in less than 12 hours. We are treated to a shot of the extortionist through the binoculars of a policeman, and we see what looks like, uh, kind of like Craven the Hunter in Army Fatigues with dynamite strapped to his chest. Gordon turns to inform Superman and Robin, but they've pulled a Batman and streaked out the window to pursue this lead, Superman having overheard Gordon's conversation with his superhearing, of course. At the bridge, Superman confronts the man who claims to have captured Batman, who has rigged his explosives to prevent Superman from foiling his plan. And Superman learns the whole story. The guy, name of Ed Wiley, has an axe to grind with superheroes, and so to prove he's just as good and just as smart as they are, he laid in wait for Batman one evening and shot out the tire of the Batmobile, causing it to crash, and dragged out the unconscious crime fighter. Wiley then buried Batman, where he wouldn't be lonely, he says, and left him with enough air to last through the ransom period. While Wiley tells his tale, Batman's sidekick sneaks uh, sneaks up the side of the bridge and attempts to disarm the nut with a batarang. 
It's unclear if Wiley is pulled off the bridge or if he stumbles or if maybe he even intentionally jumped, but neither Superman nor Batman, or excuse me, Superman or Robin rather, can stop him in time from pushing the detonator and in a panel worthy of Neil Adams himself, Buckler shows the teen wonder taking the full brunt of the explosion. One pissed off Superman rushes his young pal to Metro General Hospital where the doctors say they work all night through the uh, they worked rather all through the night to save him. Morgan Edge arrives and berates Gordon for his handling of the situation, but Superman, angry and frustrated by this situation and Edge's poor timing, intervenes and puts the fear of God into the communications magnet before storming out uh, of the waiting room. Jimmy Olsen pursues and tries to comfort his distraught pal. Superman and Jimmy confer, and re-listening to a recording the police made of Wiley's mad rating, uh, rantings, put the pieces of the puzzle together. Superman streaks to Metropolis Cemetery, the one place in the city where a buried man wouldn't be lonely, he thinks. Uh, and I'm thinking this must be one big-ass cemetery if Metropolis only has one. But enough on that. Uh, he finds a newly dug plot, plows into the ground, and unearths a lead-lined coffin. More on that in just a moment. Reassuring his old friend that he's safe now, the man of tomorrow rips into the box to find... Nothing. The box is empty. Lose something, he hears, and whirling, finds his buddy, the Batman, whole and hearty, standing over him, smiling, smiling down with the moon big and bright behind him. The best panel in the whole book, and what I already think is a beautifully illustrated story, is that shot of, uh, of Batman standing over Superman. Anyway, uh, Superman proclaims, Batman! And he zooms up to clap a hand on his sh uh, friend's shoulder, says, I don't know how you did it, Bruce, but by Krypton, I'm glad to see you alive. Now, does this sound to you like two guys that should be fighting each other, dear listener? But uh, again, uh, I'll try not to editorialize too much on that point. Anyway, later in Robin's hospital room, the teen has regained consciousness and Batman spills the bean on how he pulled it off, meaning his escape. Turns out that uh, there was a screwed-on plate at the feet of the coffin, so after nearly two hours of intense yoga techniques, he was able to switch his position in the box, unscrew the plate, and then use it as a shovel to dig his way to the surface where he replaced the earth and waited for his captor to return. And of course, he never did. It was Superman that showed up. Well, says Robin, as Superman grins and Gordon looks on, that settles it. You really are the world's greatest escape artist. And that's the end of the story. And I just had a few uh, notes on this before we uh, start breaking the whole thing down. Um, I just got to say this, you know, this is by far my favorite world's finest story uh, for a lot of reasons. I loved this issue when I was a kid. Uh, I had a well-worn coverless copy that I read many, 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 many times. And uh, I used to just pour over that gorgeous buckler art in this. I just think, I think it's just a gorgeously illustrated book. Um, a lot of what I love about the story, of course, is the art, but I think it's also a, a good, simple buddy story that really shows the depth of caring that, that Superman has for his friend Batman. And uh, it also gives everybody in the story a, a real chance to shine. You know, Superman, uh, I think, rarely looked more dynamic than he did when Buckler drew him. I, I just love the way Buckler draws Superman, and I especially like how he looks here because... The combination of how Buckler you know, already drew him as lean and powerful combined with Superman's frustration throughout the whole story give him this like coiled spring look 
Like he's just going to explode at any moment. I really like that. I don't know how Buckler makes that happen, but it, it, that's just what he looks like. He looks like he's just barely holding back. And I really like that. You know, a lot of comic book artists are either good Superman artists or good Batman artists, but I don't find a lot of them that I think do true justice to both characters. But, uh, but Buckler manages to do that. And I, I think it's just great. Um, and it doesn't hurt that, you know, of course he's inked by one of the greats, uh, Dick Giordano, who, you know, was masterful with both characters in his own right as well. And, uh, uh, it's worth a mention here cause I don't remember him being in a lot of the stories. Uh, Robin love Buckler's Robin, you know, another uh, character that I, I think that there were not a lot of, of artists that I thought really did justice to this particular version of Robin, you know, the, uh, the, the Dick, um, um, Shit, why am I blanking on his name? Grayson. Uh, Grayson, thank you. The Dick Grayson version you know, with the pixie boots and all that. But, I mean, he looks great. You know, he's right up there with uh, with Perez's take or Adams or Grell. Uh, you know, some of the other guys I really like on Robin. Um, I just wanted to mention, you know, it was a, it was a genuine thrill for me last June, um, you know, when I went up to, uh, to New York and uh, we all got together for Eternal Con. You know, I finally got to meet rich buckler in person at that con and i actually repurchased this issue while i was at the convention um because you know of course you know i talked about that coverless copy i had i still have it somewhere uh i had replaced it years ago with um you know one that actually has a cover on it but just before it was time to leave for the con i dug that issue out and found that while it does have a uh, cover on it it was really in not good enough shape to where I would have felt comfortable presenting it to Buckler, so I didn't take it with me. And then once I was actually at the con and, and got to meet him and everything, was digging through some boxes, and lo and behold, there was that issue. So I repurchased it just so I could go upstairs and have him sign it for me, because I, I really do love this issue. Um, one thing about the story, though, that uh, you know, whenever I read this story, I just have to kind of ignore one part of the story, and that's the lead line box. Um, Superman says that he digs where he does for Batman's coffin because of the newly dug grave that he spots. And I've always wondered, you know, why isn't he zeroing in on the one thing that should stand out like a sore thumb, the lead lining of Batman's coffin. And I suspect that it's because, and and this is just my guess, but I'm thinking that it's because Conway is treating this as if the, the lead lining prevents Superman from seeing the coffin at all. And this is one of those things that John Byrne, I thought, really masterfully tackled during his run. Um, you know, this was uh, almost the subject, uh, in a sense, of Superman Volume 2, Number 9. In that story, the Joker lies and he tells Superman that he's buried um, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and Perry White in these lead lined coffins and he spread them all over metropolis. And there's, I think if I remember the story properly, I think there was like a, a, a time thing going on, much like in this story with Batman, you know, there was a time issue, you know, that he had to find them. Well, in that story, Superman finds them in like mere minutes. And then he discovers that, you know, the, the Joker was being deceptive. And then eventually he finds the Joker and apprehends him. Anyway, when he's asked how he was able to find the coffin so quickly, when you know he couldn't see them, Superman said, well, you see, he says, uh, and this is an exact quote from the issue because I actually looked it up. He says, the Joker was working on the basis of a popular misconception many have about how my powers work. 
everyone knows I can't see through lead. For some reason, many people seem to think that that means anything covered or lined with lead is somehow invisible to me, but that's not how it works at all. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. When I scanned Metropolis with my X-ray and telescopic vision, the lead-lined coffins stood out precisely because I couldn't see through them. And see, I never had problems with that when I was a kid. That I figured that was how it worked. And so this this part of the story always did kind of confuse me. It's like if that coffin was lined with lead, then he should be able to you know use his X-ray vision on that cemetery and go up. Oh, there's the one right there. It should have taken him seconds, I would think. Anyway, you know, I've often wondered if Byrne might have been directly referencing this particular story with that explanation. You know, just the use of the lead-lined coffins and you know the the time thing and all that. It just it seems like a little bit more than just a coincidence to me. Um, and one thing I, I've noticed that. Uh, we've been a bit remiss on this show, or at least I have anyway, and I'm going to try to be better about it in the future is pointing out where, um, listeners can find particular stories. Uh, this issue, this story I was shocked to find actually has been reprinted and it was reprinted in a, in a trade paperback called Batman, the strange deaths of Batman, um, which also I found reprints a comic that I've actually been hunting for on the cheap for a couple of years now as part of my comics of Walt Disney World collection, which is uh, Batman Chronicles number eight, the cover of which uh, has uh, Batman getting chomped by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. So that's pretty much everything on my specific notes for the issue. I'm dying to know what you guys thought about this one, because as I say, this is one of my favorites. I like it. <laughs> now, I, I what I like about this is the sense that I got with World's Finest, when it worked at its best, it was always just a good one-and-done story mm-hmm. that didn't have ramifications to it. It almost had had that Golden Age, Silver Age feel where, you know, continuity be damned. We're just going to do a story here. Or, or that Haney-verse feeling in Brave and the Bold where, you know, none of, this, none of this... Hmm? Zany Haney. Yeah, exactly. And and this this is exactly that. This is a story you you know you're never going to deal with this again, but it's just a good read when you're reading it. And and I agree with you. The art is terrific in this thing. Uh, you know, Buckler really just shines with the uh, with the with the inks. Who, who is it? Frank McLaughlin did the inks and in, the interior inks. No, um, on the interior it is. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. It is Frank McLaughlin. Yeah. Wait, you know what? I, okay. I, yeah, I was thinking it was um, Giordano, but I think Giordano just did the, yeah, he just he did, did the, the cover. cover inks. Yeah, that was my it, bad. The, and, and I think you hit it on the head. There is, there's more than just a little Neil Adams in the way this is drawn. Well, you know, for the longest time, this story gave me a vibe of another story, and it just finally came to me what it was. Have you ever read? The House That Haunted Batman mm-hmm. from Detective Comics 408. I don't think I have. It's that one that the cover is beautiful. It's a it's an Adams cover, and it's I think it's an Adams story as well, where Batman's holding Robin in his arms, and, and it's spread out over several panels. And he says, Robin, what's happening to you? And Robin slowly dissolves to dust. In oh, I office. know the one you're talking about, yes. And, and then in the issue itself... Um, Batman's on this weird, it, most of it's like in the dark and he keeps stumbling into these different rooms, like a, like a haunted house or like a fun house. 
And one room, he's the, the walls are compressing in on him, but you never actually see walls. It's it's Adams using like the negative space, you know, the black space to show him being crushed. And then there was another scene where Batman like walks downstairs or something and comes to a funeral. And it's him laying in the coffin and all of his friends are standing around him. But they all start saying things like Superman says, you know, I did all the work and our team, our, our, our uh, partnership was a fraud or something like that. And then Gordon's like, I forget what Gordon says, but essentially like what a prick Batman was or something like that. And Batman's, <laughs> and Batman's like, that's not true. You know, he's saying all this, but they can't hear him. It's kind of like an Ebenezer Scrooge that type thing. For, for some reason, this story always kind of reminded me to that. And I, I think it's because of that opening splash with Batman in the coffin. Um, you know, in the use of the negative space to represent like the earth pressing in on him and all that. And it just it, it really reminds me of that. Um, Buckler, to me, is just one of those great unsung artists that just doesn't seem to get enough uh, of his due. You know what I mean? I mean, I know he has his fans and everything, but I just think that he deserves to be much more lauded than he actually is. And, uh, you know, a lot of what makes me hunt down uh, world's finest issues from this time is two things. It's it's his stuff on the Superman Batman stories, and then also the um, the Don Newton stuff on on the Captain Marvel, you know, on the Shazam stories. Because largely, the world's finest stories are kind of forgettable. But the art's beautiful. This I picked this particular issue, or you know, this particular story because this is the one that always comes to mind. Where not only is the art beautiful, but it's it's not a forgettable story. I, I think this is a really good story. But again, it is a story that has no bearing on any other stories. It's just true, one and done by right. itself. Right. And, and, I, and like I said, I think that was the purpose of World's Finest. I don't think World's Finest was supposed to have a greater continuity effect about it. Right. You know, it, it was effectively taking kind of the Silver Age trope of having the one and done stories, but, you know, just I think for the most part doing it fairly well. Uh, the interesting thing for me is on the cover, if you didn't have the autograph on there of Buckler and Giordano, mm-hmm. I would have I sworn that that's a Ross Andrew cover. Really? The way Superman and Batman are both drawn? Absolutely. That's that's what I would have thought of it. You know, yeah. I, I would have I, been wrong, but, but that's what. Kinda, I you know, now that you say that, though, I can kind of see that. I can kind of see that because that the way Superman looks right there reminds me an awful lot of the cover of um, Superman and His Amazing Fortress of Solitude, which I think is Ross, isn't it? I'm not sure. I believe I, it is. I, I, I think so. Yeah, but that that would have been my take on it. Uh, I like. In particular, just going through it, I like the co- the splash page and, like you said, the use of negative space there, really well done. Even the uh, the second page where they're showing him inside the coffin and, you know, taking the steps to try and escape, the lack of color uh, creates that, that claustrophobic feel. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Bless you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, I like the shot of uh, Superman flying with Robin. And it, it looks like, you know, the way Robin looks like he's kind of almost panicking a little bit. Right. You know, where he's saying, when you move, you really move. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. It, it's just, you know, then then you get, you know, the Craven the Hunter with the uh, with the TNT on him. Uh, that first close-up on page six, that looks like it could have been drawn by Gil Kane. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, that's one of the things about Buckler is he, 
he was accused at one time of of kind of copying Kirby, but I don't think he really ever did that. I don't think he was ever like you know a, a I don't think he plagiarized other art. I think he was influenced by other art, and he I, I think he's always been a guy who can kind of adopt adopt other styles when it suited him. And and I think as it suits him in the book, you know, he he kind of shifts a little bit here and there. In this particular book, like I said, it, it looks like he's he's going with a lot of Neil Neil Adams influence here, but it it's never feels like mentioned- it's a rip off of Neil Adams. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I was listening to an older Fantastic Cast, or might have been one of the newer episodes, because Rich Buckler's uh, they're about to get to the issues he drew, mm-hmm. and apparently there's a site out there that you know is is dedicated to showing all the times that rich buckler ripped somebody off but most of them are like circumstantial evidence that wouldn't hold up in court uh because you know if you're going to draw the thing unless you're drawing him as an emaciated 12 year old boy on some level you're channeling kirby you know that's just how that character is and also, what what I don't think any of us will ever really know is it could be the editor was telling him, you draw this like Neil Adams because Neil Adams is selling. So right. him being a talented artist, he makes it look like his own. But there's a, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot of Adams in here to which I say good, <laughs> you know, more than anything, because, you know, Neil Adams drawing Batman ain't no bad. It's, it's, oh. Yeah, you know, your art looks like one of the best artists ever. Oh, yeah. damn. <laughs> right yeah so I was, I was hoping to look shittier than this like what the hell no I, I hate you know there are times where people like specifically swipe something there is a a young blood i believe it's a young young blood number four that has bad rock on it and it's a direct ripoff to an early thing issue uh the mid 80s series uh and there is no from my memory there's no after like this is an homage but at the same time, Bad Rock is a big Rocky character. So it kind of makes sense that he would do that if he liked that cover. He's doing kind of the Bad Rock version of it. So I don't, I really hate it when people get all hung up on, well, he's just copying this. It's like, does it look good? Did you like it? Then shut up. I mean, that sounds <laughs> a little harsh on my part, but it's kind of how I feel sometimes. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you on that because it's, and and this isn't. I don't think you're going to find the Neil Adams book where where, where Rich Buckler ripped off these poses from or or the, mm-hmm. you know, the, anything from. I think he aped the style in this, and I don't see anything wrong with that. No, and, if it works, it works. Uh, and I, I believe in this issue in particular, it definitely works very well. I, I, I love how uh, how the guy captures Batman though that he shoots out the the back tire of the Batmobile. I, I would have thought that the Batmobile would have bulletproof tires, you know, or self-sealing tires or something. They, so much for Master did after this Batman. Hmm? They did after this issue. Yeah, <laughs> after the, he learned his lesson. <laughs> I, uh, really, the, the car the car crashed and it exploded. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you'd think there'd be all sorts of safeguards to prevent that kind of thing. You, you know, I, I immediately, when I was reading this story and I got to this part of it, I immediately went to Mike's Amazing World to see if this is the car crash that Len Wein talks about, or the explosion that Len Wein talks about in the Untold Legends of the Batman. 
because Batman's going a little crazy in that story because mm-hmm. of right. something that happened to him. This is about a year or two after that, but I was just like, uh, is, is this what they're talking about? But I was completely wrong about that, uh, which was a little disappointing. You know, if you ever look at pictures of Neil Adams from the 60s, he kind of looks like this bad guy. Yeah, yeah, he does. He's got like the crazy goatee. Uh, if, uh, if Paul's, uh, wrapped up with his notes, uh, I, I, I wanted to gush about the artwork a little more. <laughs> you, you gush, my friend. Uh, you know, on a story front, this, th- this one wasn't like, you know, the greatest of stories, but it holds up. I think what really, you know, the superstar of this one in, in me is how ever, how awesome everyone looks. My only real artistic negative is that I think Superman's cape is too short. I, I don't like the butt length cape for lack of a better term, but you know, Rich Buckler is one of those people that put a lie to uh, one of my old things is like uh, one of the things he used to say all the time is that Perez was the only one that could make the Robin costume, the pixie boot Robin costume work. That's full of crap. Buckler draws the hell out of that costume. Yep. God, I love it. It's just, it makes it look awesome. It doesn't look silly. And Robin looks older. He looks like he's in his, you know, like 1920, somewhere around there. Yep. And he doesn't look silly in the outfit because of it. And and Batman just looks amazing throughout this entire story. Uh, one of my favorite moments, oh, God, just him, Superman turning on Morgan Edge. Yes. And going, funny, you, I'm right at that page looking at that, yeah. too, yeah. Going and you, STFU. <laughs> right. I mean, I almost want to like white out the keep away from me. And it's just like, because it is a little silly, but I love Morgan Edge looking a little nervous because I don't know. This this Superman in particular, if he looks angry and puts his finger in my face, I'm crapping my pants. Yeah, I'm no sorry. Kidding. Yeah. Because <laughs> this Superman did not get angry like that often. Whereas now it's a little more commonplace. I, I, I have to agree with Paul or, or whoever said it. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, shooting out the Batman's, uh, the Batmobile's back tires is about as silly as Jason Todd stealing them. <laughs> you would think there would be more security on this thing. But no, this, this is, you know, when you get into the later run of World's Finest and Scott and I ran into this again and again and again on Tales... Some of those stories are awful. Mm-hmm. Some of those stories are so awful, they draw Superman in place of where Batman is supposed to be. <laughs> but when you look at stories like this, it kind of makes it like, like if they could all be of this quality, then a regular team up between these two characters works. Uh, I, I, I do like the moment where the bomber falls off of the, uh, of the bridge and Superman shoots out his web line and catches him by the ankle, uh, but there's an audible snap. <laughs> and oh, wait, wait, wait! Sorry, sorry, sorry. That's that's the death of Gwen Stacy. I apologize for that. Well, you but know, no, on that ahead. part though, that that is one of the other moments of the story that I just kind of have to overlook whenever I reread this. Is that you know, here you've got a guy that can fly so fast that he can break the time barrier and go into the future whenever he wants to. Yet he's not fast enough to. F- to catch this guy falling off the bridge. I'm like, what? You always go back to the how it should have ended of Superman the movie where Lex Luthor goes, you know, even with your great speed, what? What? These two missiles? 
it just makes you just bust out laughing because as much as you love that film and as much as it it's great to see Christopher Reeve flying out of both of them, you do, it, it's the, it's the Superman fallacy is kind of how, what I call it is mm-hmm. that he can do everything, but if he did everything, you don't have a story with any drama potential, right. you know? Right. So you, you have to question it, but you can't look too deeply or you're never going to enjoy a single Superman story. Right. Maybe I'm just weird. I don't no, know. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Well, I always chalk it up to... It just the fact that we agree with him doesn't mean he's not weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there was that, that great story where um, this was late in the post-crisis era where Mongol's son came to Earth to train Superman. And he tells him something like, you're thinking too much like a human. You're basically, you're holding yourself back from how powerful you really could be if you'd let go of your humanity, essentially. And I thought that that was kind of brilliant insight because that has has long been, in my own mind, how I was kind of no-prizing a lot of moments like this one where, like I said, you know, Superman's fast enough to do X, yet here he's not fast enough to catch this guy. It's because he's not, you know, he's not always living in the super moment, if you know what I mean. Sometimes mm-hmm. he's just a guy and he has to remind himself, oh, yes, I can actually outrun a bullet, you know, but he has to actually be thinking about it to do it kind of thing, if that makes any sense. And in that particular moment, he just wasn't thinking that way, I guess. See, I'm just I'm just picturing in my mind the George Reeves Superman. Mm-hmm. Su- Superman, why why didn't you save that guy? You know, I forgot I could. And then he looks at the camera and winks. Right. <laughs> hey, Superman, why'd you let those two people fall off that mountain? Oh, because I couldn't. I, I forgot I was fast enough to catch them, and they knew who I really was. Be with us next week for the, uh, another exciting adventure. Exciting adventure where Superman kills again. <laughs> All right, Bill, you got anything on this one? Oh no, I, I, I'm just enjoying listening to you guys talk about it. Uh, <laughs> All right, well then. You okay. <laughs> sorry, to, sorry, I'm, sorry I'm, to have I'm, disturbed I'm, you from your slumber. No, 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 no. All right, I guess then we're ready to rate it. I'm going to give the cover an A. Uh, I'm going to give the interior art a B, but only because of the length of Superman's cape. Uh, otherwise, I think layout-wise and you know everyone being on model was pretty was pretty dead on. And I'm going to give the story a- an A as well, just because I just enjoyed myself so much reading it. I really did. <laughs> um, well, you know why? You know why his cape's that short, right? Why? Because you don't tug on Superman's cape. And you don't spin into the wind. You don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger. And you don't mess around with Scott. Well, let me let me ask you how how long do you think it should be? Because I'm thinking that in a lot of panels, it's not really that it is just butt length. It's it's that Buckler he's, always he's moving has in motion. Yeah, I, I was wondering that too. That if he just stood still, where would that fall? Right, and it's hard to if tell. You look at on page twelve. Where Superman, uh, the third panel, page twelve, where Superman is actually bringing the coffin, he's like he's about to rip the lid off the coffin. That's one of the few panels where the cape is actually laying flush with his body, and it's down to the back of his knees. Yeah, but look at the panel above that of him flying towards the coffin. 
where it right. looks like the K or not the one where he's flying down, but even that one to a certain extent, it doesn't look like it goes past his knees. Right. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up the Holy name again. John Byrne completely flipped my switch on what that Cape should look like. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll agree because with that. I, I think hands down Jurgens did great things with it. Other artists did fantastic things with his costume but Byrne drew that cape like no one had drawn it before, even to a certain extent, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Reyes be his name, who I think did always always did a great job with it. But it was just something about, and I think it's because Byrne drew one of the best flying Supermans ever as well. Right. So you had that going forward as well. So it's hard for me to say how long should it be, because I'm always going to be, well, how long did Byrne draw it? That's how long it should be. Right. So, <laughs> I, I well, don't know if that answers the question. Um, I'll go ahead and I'll grade it real quick. Um, I love, absolutely love the cover on this. Uh, I'm going to go a straight up A on the cover. Uh, interior art is also an A. I absolutely love it. Um, actually, let me think. Do I want to go A plus on the interior? Because I am, I am really in Do love. Do it. I'm, I'm going to go A plus because I'm not. I'm flipping through it real quick. I'm not seeing a single panel that I don't like in this, so I'm going to go A plus. I, I think the art's just beautiful, and the story I will go an A minus just because of a, a couple of the nitpicks I had with it, like the lead line coffin and you know the the kind of silly way the guy takes Batman out and a couple other things. But overall, I mean, it's a straight up A of a of a story. I love this, absolutely love it. It's nice to know that it still holds up from when I was a kid. Okay, um, I really like the cover, and I really like the fact that they that he, it incorporates the other people who are in the book, even though they're not in this story. Mm-hmm. And normally, I think that would bother me that they're not in the story and yet they're depicted as being part of it. And like, I would expect to be bothered when reading the story to not have them in it, and yet it didn't bother me in the slightest. So I'm gonna well, say, it, well, because if they didn't if they didn't put them on here. Then they'd have to do one of those weird covers with like different panels on the cover showing everybody that's in the book. No, this... you do have between the uh, the DC symbol and the dollar, you do have everybody's name listed there. Well, yeah. So I mean, you could have gotten away if 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 you just did not have Green Arrow, Shazam, Hawkman, and, and Red Tornado on the cover, you still would be able to get away with it. Yeah, but I don't think it would. I think it sells better with all of them on exactly. The I think I think it, it's an exciting cover, and yet the story was good enough that it didn't bother me that they're not in it. Which, mm-hmm. like I said, it probably should have bothered me, but it didn't. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say just a straight A on the cover. I really like it. Uh, the interior art, I I've seen Rich Buckler art that's as good as this. I'm not sure I've seen Rich Buckler art that's better than this, and. I didn't even notice the cape until Mike point, pointed it out, so it didn't bother me at all. So if that's the shortcoming from it, I'm okay with that. So, <laughs> shortcoming. What's that? <laughs> shortcoming. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna say an A on the interior art as well. Uh, the story, it's kind of like I said, it's just a good good read. No, nothing you know earth shattering that's gonna come back to have ramifications, but just you know solid read. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say a B plus on the story. The lead line. Uh, casket also didn't bother me, so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go with the thought process that there's other lead line caskets around for some reason. 
<laughs> you know, just to protect it from the, the elements or something. So there might be multiple caskets that he can't see through. So this one wouldn't stand out in and of itself. I don't, I don't know if that has any logic at all, but that's what I'm running with. And, uh, but I'm going to say a B plus on that. And overall, I'm going to give the book an A minus. Hmm. Doctor. Um, Doctor. 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 Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? So over was under Unger, but Unger was You over. are stalling! Yeah, really? Well, we got four <laughs> more books to cover. Uh, I don't think we're going to do my two books tonight. Oh, I am fading. I am fading! You are fading! <laughs> I am fading hard. You really are stalling here. I know. So anyway, uh, I'm going to... First, I'll do my Buried Alive story, then I'll do the book, since I'm not going to cover my two books tonight. So you can... Uh, and now it's time for... I have one job. <laughs> you had one job ladies and gentlemen it is time for real life with dr bill robinson while i have never actually been buried alive i thought i was buried alive once and what happened was when i was on when i was in the navy you slept in a bed that basically was a coffin and you got into it from one side and if i rolled over on 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 my side my shoulder would touch the the uh, the bed above me basically so there was not a lot of room in there and where my my rack was situated on the ship I had a I had a cabinet right next to my head so one night I woke up on the ship we were in port there was no movement or anything it was dark and I I I woke up and I didn't know where I was at and I put my hands up and there was metal I put my hand to the side <laughs> there was metal. I put my hand to the other side and there was metal and then I screamed <laughs> and then I quickly jumped I you know I flailed around and I kicked the curtain open and fell out of the bed and you know people there was like one person in in, in the in the birthing compartment and uh, you all right man I'm, yeah yeah I'm fine I'm fine <laughs> I'm fine so so yeah that's uh yeah I thought I was buried alive are you supposed to close buried out now Paul? Alive. <laughs> it was scary man I, I, you know, I would imagine it would have been. <laughs> no. uh, I, 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 I'm going to add only one thing to that is that this is one of the many reasons I, I didn't join the armed services because I am mildly claustrophobic and I couldn't take that on a regular basis. It would freak the crap out of me. It well, really you grow accustomed to it be, uh, because I did have a little light switch in there and I had little shelves behind my head. But this one instance I woke up and I just didn't know where I was. You were just, it was so, I was so tired. I woke up and I didn't realize where I was at. And you just put your hands up and out and you're completely, you're, you're, to me, it felt like I was in a box and it freaked me out. And, and it was uh, a little scary, little scary. So, but I wasn't very alive. And now back to the book. Uh, so yeah, Batman freaking out. That pretty much was me when I thought I was buried. <laughs> Although I wasn't wearing a Batman outfit. That would even weirder if I flopped out of bed wearing a Batman outfit. Especially the size I am. Oh, would be fat. And missing a kidney. It would have just been weird. <laughs> missing a kidney. What? Oh. So, uh, the cover. Yeah, like I said before, when Paul was, uh, when I butted it on uh, Paul's review, I, I, I kind of like everybody on, on the cover, which you did too. Um, and the art and everything, I'm going to give the cover, eh, I'm going to give it an A minus. And you guys are right. I do think. This this Robin does remind me of the George Perez uh, Teen Titans Robin 
and uh, I think he looks smashing, awesome. The interior art, the only squabble I got is on page five, is that face that it's just a weird, Buckler put a weird face on Superman, like he has no nose, like somebody smashed him in the face, and Robin's kind of caught like, like Scott Gardner, face, as he's been ripped off the ground by, uh, by Superman. Uh, but other than that, uh, everything else in here is is really really beautiful. Now, didn't Jason Todd get blowed up too after he got beat up with a crowbar? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's kind of funny here that Robin gets blown up in this issue. It kind of brought that bet that to my head. Um, so art wise, I'm gonna give it a B plus, and the story, mm, I'm also gonna give that a B plus. So we're looking at. B plus overall. All righty. Ready to move on to mine? On to our third book. It's all you Alrighty. I um I went a little outside of the box for this one. But when it was mentioned that we wanted to cover books. What's in the box? Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm surprised sorry, no one said that during uh, Scott's book. I was actually thinking about it, but I'm like, nah, that's too obvious. <laughs> well, no one had the head in the box. When it was uh, when it was brought up that we were going to be talking about Superman and Batman stories, specifically ones where they're not fighting, I immediately flashed to what I think is one of the most pivotal, pivotal, pivotal Superman. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, one of the most pivotal. God, I did it again. Jesus Christ, I can't talk tonight. Uh, one of the most important. It's like when you're trying to write something and you can't spell it, so you choose another word that you know how to spell that means the same thing. Uh, To me, one of the most important Superman-Batman stories of the post-crisis era. And oddly enough, it comes not only in a a kind of a weird book, but during a weird time as well. My story comes from Superman Secret Files and Origins number one, which is a cover date of January 1998, which means it came out roughly around November of 1997. Secret, or- Secret Files and Origins was like a series of books that DC put out uh, for a really long time, right up until uh, the uh, the new Flash series after Flash Rebirth had a Secret Files and Origins special. So uh, the concept lasted a pretty long time, but it was basically not only were you going to tell like little short stories that explain, you know, things about the character's origin and background and important events in the character's life, but it also had who's who style pages that were mostly art, but with a little bit of text as well. This was during the electric blue era. Don't let anybody lie to you and say it was the Superman red Superman blue era. Cause that only happened towards the end. Uh, it was mostly when he had electrical powers and the first story in this is, was written by uh, Dan Jurgens, uh, penciled by Dan Jurgens. Uh, inked by Jerry Ordway, so right away you know it looks pretty freaking sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Jason Wright, uh, edited by Casey Carlson, Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. The story title is Who is Superman? And it opens on this very typical Jurgens-looking guy doing research on Superman. And through the course of the story, we not only see the entire history of the post-crisis Superman, we also see Gordon Selkirk, and I'm using that in quotes, visiting Martha and Jonathan Kent and talking about Clark, but also talking about Superman and why he is the way he is and what shaped him as a hero. 
And after their conversation that takes it all the way up through the Doomsday storyline, Gordon mentions that his parents died when he was very young and how lucky Clark was to have the parents that he had to bring him up. A little later, uh, Superman shows up in his fancy, you know, as Peter David call it, ice skater outfit. And he's talking with his parents and they mention that Gordon Selkirk dropped by. Uh, Superman responds by going, Gordy? I haven't seen him since the wedding. Wonder what brought him here from Orlando. And when Pa mentions that Gordon's parents were dead, Superman has a, I should have had a V8 moment. Because he, you know, his parents, Gordon's parents are not buried alive, but they are alive. And that makes him realize, holy crap, it was Batman disguised as Gordon. And we go to a beautiful shot of the Batcave where we have the Gordon mask. And I am hoping, it is never said, but I am hoping that he was actually wearing the cowl under the mask because it doesn't make a lick of sense, but I still love that. And basically, Superman wants to know what Batman was doing. And Batman explains, I wanted to mention, uh, I wanted to investigate why you are the way you are and why we are so different. And Batman says, we're opposites. You represent the light, I represent the dark. You're a product of love and order, and I'm a product of violence and chaos. And Batman takes off his cowl, and usually Superman just is like, deuces, I'm out of here. But this point, but this time, Superman changes back to Clark, and they sit down, and they actually seem to have a conversation. And that is the main reason I chose this story, because when I read this in November of 1997, this was a game changer for me. And I really think it was a game changer for the Superman-Batman relationship. I don't think you have the Superman-Batman title that Jeff Loeb started with Ed McGinnis without this story. Because between this and them working together in JLA, suddenly Superman and Batman go from being two people that don't get along and don't trust each other's methods to two people that understand why they are different and that they can still be friends. The shot of them having a cup of coffee is so pedestrian, but for me, it's what I want to see these characters doing. Because while them teaming up, I I, I am a believer that Superman Batman team-up stories should be an event. It should be like your you know, summer blockbuster story. But, you know, for whatever reason, they wanted to make it a regular thing throughout most of the, you know, gold and silver and bronze age. But while I don't think you should do it every day, this proves why these two characters are great together. Because they represent two sides of the same coin. Batman, even when he is at his most jovial, is a character born of tragedy. Superman is also a character born of tragedy, but that tragedy also has a miracle element from it because he is the last survivor and he was lucky enough to be found by the Kents and raised in a loving environment where Bruce wasn't. Bruce had to kind of bring himself up. You know, Alfred did the best he could, but it was still such a lonely childhood. So these two characters, of course, they would look at each other kind of sideways going, what the hell is that dude's problem? I think one of, for me, one of the the MVPs of this story is the Jurgens Ordway art. Because there are so many iconic shots of Superman 
and his friends and the pivotal moments in his life. You mean you have this beautiful shot of Brainiac going from Milton Fine to the green-skinned version of the character. A beautiful two-page spread of the Doomsday Battle with the four supposed Superman and black-suited Superman punching Cyborg Superman's jaw off and then the electric blue outfit. But also, there are so many moody pieces. Towards the end of the story, on pages 22 and 23... Batman as Selkirk is in the shadows a lot, and it's kind of hinting at who he is. And I think putting Jurgens and, 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 and Ordway together on this was so perfect. The Batman at the end of this story looks magnificent. I love the cape stretching on the floor. I love the ears coming up and not being ridiculously long, but a little longer than maybe they would normally be shown. Uh, even the shot of the of the Robin costume in the glass behind Superman, just about everything about this story worked for me because it's not it's not like the stories you guys chose where there is a crime to solve. This is at best and at its best a story about a man like Batman trying to understand how Superman could be the way he is, meeting his parents and going, of course, it's the only way this could have worked. These people are amazing. And I just completely love this story, and I have gone on for far enough. I really want to hear what y'all think of it. Hated it. Oh, no. Uh... <laughs> that was mean. <laughs> Isn't that like, couldn't that be our uh, tagline? Back to the bins. We're mean. That was mean. <laughs> no, I, 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 I love I'd the never read this book. one before, and I thought it was a really cool story. And the thing that entranced me the most about it was the artwork. Because what I kept coming back to in my mind was when we talk about 90s artwork, or just when we talk about 90s comics, there's just usually like a negative connotation that comes with that. And I think I have to distinguish between different types of 90s things. Because I look at this, and it does say 1990s to me, but it says it in a good way. This, when we talk about how the 90s aren't as bad as people make it out to be, this is the artwork that I picture in my mind. So it, it's, you know, I don't know if I'm articulating it the right way, but, you know, the, the 90s had its excesses and all, but it also had some quality. And if there was a quality house style in the 90s, if there is such a thing, this would kind of fall right into that, in, into that look. Uh, you know, it's got the the coloring and and the inking very you know very much like the '90s of the time, but but it all works and it looks beautiful. It's just you know really, just you know a lot of the artwork just pops. So that was the thing that really caught me. And then you know as as you're retelling the story, in the end of it, you know the whole the way Batman and and Superman connect at the end, uh, you know the, the, there's something really there that that just you know tugs at the heartstrings a little bit. You see the two of them sitting there with their coffee cups, you know, with all the stalactites and stalagmites around them. I really like Dan Jurgens and Jerry Ordway art so much so that I've got a from back in I think I think I got this back in the two thousands or early two thousands. I got a Marvel Millennium lithograph that has Dan Jurgens and Jerry Ordway doing all the Marvel characters on it, and I just love their combination when they work together. I, I like, don't know uh, in in back in uh, Saturday Night Fever. That one little weird girl. I just love the way you dance. <laughs> <laughs> just love the way you draw. 
I could make a really bad joke about that, but uh, a tasteless joke, but I won't. Back to the bins. Tasteless since 2007. Tasteless. We'll be tasteless so you don't have to. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, but doesn't that girl end up getting raped at the end of the film? No, no, no. Different girl. Okay. Different girl. That's Donna Peskow, who went on to play Angie on uh, on Channel 7 with her own TV series. Uh, <laughs> the, the one I'm talking about is there was like a, a very short kind of... Uh, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, chunky girl, and and she's just very simple. And she goes over to you know John Travolta. And she's like, I love to watch you dance. And then they convince him to get up and dance with her, and she just kind of hugs him around the waist and just holds him while he's dancing. <laughs> she was there more for comic relief than uh, tragedy. Than, than the tragedy, yeah. So what do you say? I'm gonna go up to Dan Jurgens and just like hug him around his waist while he tries to draw. I get the feeling if if Dan Jurgens was here and offering to draw a picture for you, that might be what you'd do. That's what I do. Jesus, he's a nice guy. <laughs> He'd probably let it happen too. It'd be a little weird, but he really wouldn't say anything because he's that kind of guy. <laughs> Scott, you're oddly silent. I was just waiting for my turn. Um, I, I love this. I absolutely loved it. I, you know. I have this issue. I brought this issue when it was brand new. And I frankly, I think I'd kind of forgotten this story and reading it again. Of course, the very first thing that hit me was the art. Of course, the art's just beautiful. But you get to I'm not sure there's page. Oh, no, there are page numbers down at the bottom. But you get to page seven of the story where it is clearly the post crisis what I what I still refer to as the Burn Superman, although if I'm not mistaken, I think Jurgens actually handled more of this Superman than anybody else. Um, but this, I mean, I rereading this story and getting to the end of this story, I, I can't tell you guys. I just I breathed the biggest sigh because for one, you know, it was like going home again, but also. It, it makes me a little bit sad too because damn this i mean this is my superman right here you know as much as i may have grown up with uh you know with the late silver age superman and everything before the burn reboot and everything and i love that stuff and i love so many elements of it this is my superman you know when when burn uh rebooted superman right up through uh pretty much right to infinite crisis although i was starting to kind of um, you know, feel funny about, you know, I could tell things were, were turning just before infinite crisis, but essentially that 20 year stretch, uh, I love that stuff. And this is right in that sweet spot. I, I really enjoyed, uh, Jurgen's time on the character and just looking at this art. And I, I love the pages where it's kind of recapping just through the artwork, you know, what's been happening with this character. It, it's, I mean, this serves as kind of almost like a like a zero issue in a lot of ways um, to kind of bring you up to speed on not so much everything about the character, but just, you know, what makes him up, who he fights and why he fights, you know, why he does what he does. And I just I really like this stuff. And uh, it even made me feel nostalgic for the Superman blue era, which I'm not you know, I was I I've never been down on. I wasn't down on it at the time. I wasn't crazy about it when they did it, but back then they could kind of play around with certain things, even Superman, because I think that there was a, a, a misspoken or excuse me, an unspoken um, understanding that 
yeah, you know, let them play f- with this idea f- with it for a while. Let them change the costume. Let them change the hair. Let them change the power set. It'll all come back, you know, whereas that doesn't seem to be so much of, a, of an assurance these days that, you know, no matter how far a, a field they go and how far astray they go, that the character is always going to come back to his roots. You know, I'm not so certain of that anymore. But back during this time, you know, we were all pretty certain of that. And of course, that that did happen. Um, but anyway, I, I also think considering things that have happened in the comics in the past year, for example, I look back on this and, and there was a point where I was a little down on the story as it was happening. But I look back on it now. It's like, wow, that was freaking Citizen Kane. That yeah. was like the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. So it hasn't made me do that with the Stevens T. Siegel stuff because I still think that that's pretty much crap. But I look back on Superman Blue and go, wow, that was a really great Superman story, wasn't it? <laughs> but yeah, I, I really, I really, really like this story a lot. Um, it just, it, it's a perfect summation of why he is the way he is and why he does what he does. And uh, I like that it really puts the proper emphasis on where it should be, which is the Kents, you know, and and the fact that they were good salt of the earth people that just, you know, they raised him right. And I like that, you know, that that it shows the importance of, you know, having good core values and and that sort of thing. I I really enjoy the story. I think it's fantastic. They didn't Um, tell him he should let, people die to protect his identity or anything? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you, Scott, this, because you were reading it contemporary uh, or as it was coming out like I did. Did you feel this was kind of a game changer with their relationship? Well, you know, on that subject, it's funny you you asked me that because I I was thinking, you know, about what both you and Paul have said about, you know, what what Paul said about uh, World's Finest Stories and being largely forgettable. You know, it's always amazed me when you stop and think about it that these guys superman and batman had well over 300 issues together in world's finest and that's just world's finest and of course they were teaming up uh occasionally in each other's own solo mags you know they would guest star you know sometimes superman would be in a batman book or batman would be in a superman book and of course they were teammates in justice league and all that sort of thing you know, but taking just World's Finest alone, the fact that they spent all those years together in that book, yet when I sat down for this show and was trying to decide what story I wanted to do, one of the first things I did was I Googled, um, I think I did both best and greatest Batman Superman stories. And invariably, it kept taking me to stories where they would fight and it just pissed me off. And I'm like, no, no, no. So then I Googled best world's finest stories and you know some of the stories that it came up with i'm just like that doesn't sound all that great and it got me to thinking that maybe that's kind of the hallmark of that series is that you know that it was just kind of stories that uh, may have been fun may have been interesting may have had really good art but at the end of the day they didn't none of them really changed the world and you know I think that's okay because there seems to be, I think one of the problems with Superman today and and why he is in the place that he is, is that some people seem to think that, you know, everything has to be epic and everything has to, you know, you have to constantly be talking about something and and everything's got to be the best there is. 
all the time. And they forget that for a long time, you know, certain characters and Superman's, I think, definitely one of those. They just spent a, a period of just being just out there. You know what I mean? And I'm not sure if I'm explaining this correctly, but, you know, Paul mentioned the thing about the 90s. Well, you know, I, I've said many times, and I believe on this show I've said it many times, that somehow I just kind of missed the whole thing in the 90s with um, all the drama, you know, with uh, with Image and all those uh, independent companies and everything, because this is where I was. I was paying attention to what I always paid attention to, which was Superman and whatever else I was buying, but it was always primarily Superman. Superman was was my guy. You know, once Marvel's Star Wars went away, you know, the, the two kind of gateway drugs into comics for me were, were Marvel Star Wars and, of course, Superman the movie, which led me directly to the comics starring you know, with Superman. And then once Byrne did his reboot, you know, between Man of Steel, Byrne's Man of Steel and Infinite Crisis, I was there, man. And that was my ride. And so this is where I was in the 90s while all that other funky stuff was happening. And so Superman was just kind of ever present for me. And it's funny because in a lot of ways, I look at that era of Superman and and I've often been asked, you know, well, well, what are your favorite stories from that time? And I'm hard pressed to really think of like favorite stories because for one, it was an to me, it was an ongoing narrative. This was this guy's life. And I, I think that's kind of the legacy of that era is that I just enjoyed the era and it didn't have to be about events. So I'm kind of hard pressed to pick like five favorite stories or five favorite issues or anything like that, because I just liked the whole damn thing. I liked the run and this was kind of playing into that. Um, but it's all, more address your specific question, Mike, about, you know, was it a game changer or what? I, I don't know, because you you said something earlier, and I, I don't want to necessarily disagree or, or contradict you, but you had said something about, uh, I, if, if I understood you correctly, you, you seem to kind of want to put the blame for the post-crisis relationship between Superman and Batman on John Byrne. And to a certain degree... I think that's unfair because I think for one, I think that there was some editorial stuff going on behind the scenes, because if you, if you remember properly right before crisis on infinite earths, something happened and I can't tell you exactly what, because I don't own the issue and I don't know that I ever even read it, but right at the very end of world's finest, that end, the series world's finest ended with Superman and Batman, um, it, it didn't end amicably. Something happened between the two of them, and I can't for the life of me remember what it was, but they were at odds with each other at the end of that series. And that kind of carried over into post-crisis when the whole DC universe, well, I was going to say it rebooted, but it didn't really reboot, but certain aspects of it rebooted, and they kind of carried that forward. But I never saw... Burns' take is that they were now enemies. It was more that I think Byrne was trying to establish something new in the aspect of he was kind of asking the question, would these guys even like each other, let alone, you know, form a team and be best buddies and, and world's finest and all that? Would would they even like it? Would they get along? Because they when you really re-examine the whole thing, 
much like Batman says here, you know, one is a, is a creature of the light and one is a creature of the dark. So, you know, I'm glad that Byrne didn't necessarily have them hate each other or fight each other, although they kind of have a standoff in, in the beginning of that Man of Steel, what was that, number three, I think, three or four. Um, at the end of it, you know, Batman sums the whole thing up with saying, you know, something, he kind of ripped off Star Trek where he says, you know, in a different reality, I might have called you friend or something to that effect. And that's kind of how their relationship carried forward in that post-crisis thing is that, for one it took a long time for them to kind of warm up to each other and, and even become um, chummy or able to be teammates, let alone to where they finally were actual, like real friends. But also I kind of think Byrne did something genius there as to where, whether intentional or not, he did establish the fact that when these two get together, it shouldn't be just the next issue that month. It should be an event and for a time it was, because remember, they didn't, right after Crisis, they didn't team up a lot, or they didn't share the same book a lot. They kept them, you know, when when Batman was in the Justice League, Superman wasn't. And when Superman was, Batman wasn't. So they, they did keep them, you know, DC, I mean, kept them apart. And whenever they did meet up again like uh in action comics annual number one again it was it was a big deal and they actually referenced the fact that it had been you know such and such amount of time since they'd interacted with each other so they made it more eventful so i don't blame burn for making them adversaries so much as is reestablishing the fact that hey it should be a big deal when these guys cross paths with each other that whole thing with adversaries i dumped that directly at the feet of frank miller and his bullshit with dark knight and and making superman a you know a, a government agent or whatever the hell that was all about as time has worn on i have less and less tolerance for that story that i that i've ever had i've never really been keen on dark knight and as time goes on and, and all the shit that spun out of it with the, the Nolan movies and now what's happening with, with this Batman versus Superman movie, the more um, just irritated I've become with that. Well, maybe, it, maybe that's not fair to dump it all on Frank Miller, but that's where I'm going to put it. because I, 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 I think it's, it's fair to dump a lot yeah. of it. And, and, and you don't want to dump it necessarily on Frank Miller. You want to, to dump it on certain creators' reaction. Right. Well, yeah, to, that's to, the to thing. To Frank Miller is, is yeah. that it, it, Thomas DJ is is fond of saying, you know, they got the answer, but they didn't understand the question. Yeah, and that's very much it. Is that now everybody thinks that ooh, because this was really cool and it was edgy and it was new. That now you have, you know, thirty years later, you have people coming up that think that that's how it's always been or how it should i guess more that this is how it should be because dark knight is so lauded by so many comic book people it's, as being you know the definitive batman story and all that crap that now because that's supposedly the definitive batman that because superman appears in there and they have this epic tussle that that's now suddenly that's the definitive superman uh, relationship with Batman as well, and that's what spins out of that. And you can see that reflected in in this new movie that's coming out. And that bothers me because Miller, by his own admission, no more understood Superman and and the context he was using him in in that story than the people that are making this movie apparently understand him. And that 
that really worries me. And to me, that was kind of the intent of this show was to show that, you know, these guys have a long relationship as, you know, friends at best and, um, you know, uh, 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 standoffish teammates with a grudging respect for each other at, at the least. I, 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 if it came off that I was trying to blame John Byrne for anything, that really wasn't my intention. No, uh, I, I, I didn't think it was, but I, I was, well, for one, I wanted to, I really did want to kind of pick your brain about that to see what you thought. Yeah. That I didn't really think that that's what you were well, saying. Well, here, here is my thinking on the Batman-Superman relationship in the post-crisis era. Byrne does one of my favorite issues of Man of Steel because it really doesn't belong with the overall story. And that's why I like it, the fact that it's titled One Night in Gotham City uh, because it's separate from everything else going on. I mean, it does something important. It establishes Superman and Batman's relationship in this brave new world. But it really is, it doesn't have anything to do with Lex Luthor. It doesn't have anything to do with him finding out where he's from. It's just Superman going to Gotham City. And uh, you know, taking and meeting Magpie, who was kind of hot. Uh, in Action Comics Annual number one, Batman straight up says, "One of the reasons why I called you in on this and wanted to get this taken care of is the idea of a vampiric Superman is not in my best interest." Right. So it, it's not so much, "Hey, let's team up and have a grand adventure together." Uh, it's more of enlightened self-interest, I guess, would be the best way to say it. And mm -hmm. if you look at where they team up from, or the, the moments where they connect, there's a there's Action Comics number 594, where Superman brings the scrapbook that was sent to him in Superman number 5 to Batman to figure out where it is. And then in Adventures of Superman number 444, we get the resolution to that, where Batman's just like, I look this thing over, you're Clark Kent. Yeah. And it's more its more of that grudging respect you were talking about. But as you get a little deeper into things, Dark Knight over Metropolis is probably the most significant moment in their relationship in the post-crisis era. Because that is where Superman gives Batman the kryptonite ring. Right. And that's huge. That's because, the one, you know, you were asking me if I thought that this story was a game changer. And I, I honestly, I can't remember how I felt about it reading it originally because I didn't really remember it, I'll be honest. But Dark Knight over Metropolis, that was, that I most distinctly remember because that was an event when that happened. I can remember mm -hmm. it being hawked in the, in the, um, you know, the previews and the trades and everything else and really being talked up that, hey, this is a big friggin' deal. It's Superman and Batman. And it's funny because I, I distinctly remember talking to my comic book friends of the time as this was happening. And we all had kind of a chuckle that, you know, it really was a brave new world because here we were all so excited for something that used to happen on a monthly basis, yeah. you know, pre-crisis. And it was just so funny to us. But it was a big deal because they just didn't team up that much they didn't get together and now it was you know they were going to be going to each other's turf and actually interacting and how was that going to work and yeah that was exciting stuff man 
it's almost like when Batman and Superman teamed up in the Bruce Tim verse for the first time. Like it was this huge oh, deal. Yeah. And then you're like, wait a second, they used to hang out on the Super Friends all the time. Why mm-hmm. is this a big deal? And it's a big deal because it's a new generation. The reason why I think to me this one was this particular story we've been talking about is a game changer is because in Dark Knight over Metropolis, uh, which I loved, Jeffrey and I did our best to get people to write to DC to get that into a trade paperback collection. I am fairly certain that the fact that it is in a trade paperback collection right now has nothing to do with that. I think it had to do with the fact that you know there's going to be this movie and you can move some trades that way. But that was important because it showed a trust from Superman to Batman. This was important because it was Clark and Bruce sitting down. Right. And having a cup of coffee. Instead of Superman dropping off the ring going, I trust you, deuces, and flying off, it's him going, no, this time I'm going to sit and talk to you. And that's why, you know... I, I remember where I was and what I was doing. I was working third shift at that Flash Foods on 314 and 85. It was the middle of the night because I worked third shift. And I read this and I looked up and I went, the world has changed. <laughs> and from here, we got more Superman and Batman working together. And it became more commonplace. You know what the funniest thing is, is that we have this movie coming out where they're kind of adversarial, at least in everything we've seen. Like um, like Paul said, I, I think Paul made a good point, we don't know what the end of the film is going to be. So, you know, you can't hold final judgment until, you know, that all shakes itself out. But in the new 52, Superman and Batman are friends. Like, straight up, working together, liking each other, trusting each other, friends. And it was weird because everywhere else seems to want them to fight and here in the comics, they're not. So again, you have that disconnect between the what's going on in the adapted material and every and, and, and what's going on in the comics. I mean, look at like Justice League as a cartoon. It took a while for their friendship to really become a friendship. So I just I, I absolutely love the post-crisis era. You know, it, it is my favorite era. It's like you said, it's my Superman. It's my Batman. Um, but the more I think about it, and I'm not trying to get us onto a whole other level of this conversation, the more I think about it, the more I realize that some of my perceptions of that are only one or two examples that stand out so clearly in my mind that it becomes all-encompassing. A good example is the the Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman Trinity three-issue prestige format series from 2003. Where Batman is telling Robin, he's an, you know, look at Superman, he's an alien, don't trust him. But that wasn't the the Batman that was running around in the regular DC universe at that time. Right. So I'm wondering why, what is this phenomenon that I'll, that something like that will make such an impression on me that it becomes omnipresent when it's really not omnipresent? I, I don't get that. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure that one out, and I haven't come up with a satisfactory answer yet. <laughs> Well, all that over a little origin story. <laughs> it's a good one, though. Yes, absolutely. Uh, most of these secret files and origins were good. They collected this one in a trade paperback uh, called JLA Secret Origins, mm-hmm. where they collected all the origin stories from the various JLA members' secret files and origins book. Uh, and that's still available 
like uh, easily to find. It's not like one of these trade paperbacks that goes out of print and is suddenly like five hundred dollars for no good damn reason. Well, do you remember the one? Um, and I, I see. I, I'm pretty sure it was a Secret Files and Origins, but I have no idea which one it was. But there was another one where they gathered at the Kent's house, and I can remember um, Aquaman was there. And I remember the Kent saying something to the effect of like, should we bow, you know, should we bow or something like that? And, and Aquaman almost being like humble about it. And that's when he was in his, you know, the long hair with the hook hand face. Yeah. And, all that. and I remember Batman does show up. I think, I think he's the only the one. That's, one. Yeah, I think he's the only one that is not in civvies. Everybody else is in civvies. And I think he sticks to the shadows as Batman. Because, yeah, because this there's that cool the, shot of Aquaman in the cornfield. I'm remembering this now. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but that was a really good one too. Because again, it's you know it had that humanizing aspect of. It reminded me an awful lot of um, Comfort and Joy, that episode of uh, oh, yeah. the Justice League cartoon that took place at Christmas. Although I think this story predated that by some time, yes. if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, it had the same kind of effect of showing. You know, it was where the you could see the Justice League. You know, the, that was when they reformed the Justice League to be like the classic, like Super Friends type Justice League. You know, with with the big, you know, the the heavy hitters. So you, you know, you had the classic, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, all those guys. And that's where they were starting to feel each other out before um, they had that shakeup where they all ended up revealing their identities to each other. Because there was a time where that's you know, how uh, how different they were is that they didn't even know each other's identities. They all worked together and they were all teammates, but there, there wasn't that trust issue there, even between, you know, the other members of the team. So you had certain ones that knew, like Superman and Batman had already figured each other out, but then the rest of them didn't. Because I can remember there being that big revelation when everybody else learned that, that Superman was Clark Kent. Um, which again, I think they played that out on uh, on the Justice League cartoon during that alien invasion story, if I'm not mistaken. So, mm-hmm. you know, there were there were things that were similar. But yeah, I, I love that sort of thing. I, I like it when um, Superman would kind of admit these characters, you know, in into his own world and in kind of into that, you know, his his post crisis Fortress of Solitude being his you know his parents' home as opposed to you know a, a, a castle in the ice somewhere. Although in this, it's not him admitting that, you know, it's not him admitting Batman and Batman came in on his own, you know. But no, I, I, I like this one a lot. I think this is good stuff. Did we lose Paul and Bill? No, I'm right here. <laughs> I've just been listening and being entertained. All right. I don't know about Bill. He may have fallen asleep. <laughs> well, hey, Bill, we... you're in a coffin. Ah! <laughs> we ready for grades? Uh, yeah, I will give, I'm going A's across the board. I can't even hide it. That's what I'm giving it, A's across the board. Do an A on the cover as well? Yeah, I really like this cover. Uh, I, I, I have grown to love Electric Blue Superman in a way that I don't think is, 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 is healthy. Uh, <laughs> but to a certain extent, I'm going to tell you right now, for a storyline that gets crapped on, I walked into Target not three weeks ago. And there is a new Superman Blue figure as part of that uh, that Batman line that's out right now. So it's out there. Uh, so it, it, it obviously has some staying power merchandising-wise. But I really like the cover because I think it's a cool painted 
like painted look to it. Right. I I always liked Superman Red, Superman Blue. I I always thought it was really cool. I liked that whole storyline and everything. Of course, as you say, you know, it was Superman Blue first, and the red thing can't kind of came in right at the end of it. But uh, but no, I I liked it. Um, it, it started out as kind of being tolerant and going, eh, where's this thing gonna go? But like I say, it, it quickly settled into where, eh, let them run their course, let them do what they will. It'll 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 all come back eventually, which it did. And uh, but no, I I have fond memories of it because. When it did go to the red thing, I liked what they did. I, I liked that they did that. It was a it was a very much like an enemy within type of thing where you know one wasn't necessarily evil and one was good, but one had certain aspects of Superman and and the other one had other aspects of Superman. And you know, so like the red one was a bit of a hothead and the blue one was more logical and all that. I liked that because that took me back to that story I always liked from when I was a kid where. Uh, Lord Satanus had split Superman, and so you had two Supermen that kind of shared the powers between them. You know, so one had X-ray vision, and the other one had invulnerability and that sort of thing. So I, I liked that. I, I thought that was cool. So yeah, I, I, I'm not a hater when it comes to this uh, this era of Superman with, with Superman Blue. I actually thought it was kind of cool, and uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, anyway, grades. Um, I'm going to go straight up A on the art. Uh, a plus on the story. I really, really like the story. Um, and here's where I hope uh, Mike's not too disappointed. But I'm gonna go a D on the cover. I don't like it. It has nothing <laughs> has nothing to do with it being Superman Blue. Because as I say, I like Superman Blue. Um, I really do. I just I, I don't like this cover. I don't know who did the art, but I I don't like. Superman looks like the Thunderbolt, you know, like Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt, because he's got no legs. He's just got like a lightning bolt from like the waist down, so it looks kind of funny. And just damn, too many words on this cover. It's it it looks like a it looks like a newsstand tabloid or something. You just got stuff everywhere on the, it's just too busy. And yeah, I'm not I'm not crazy about the cover, but everything else, love it, love it, love it. Good stuff, good story. Yeah, I'm closer to you than to Mike on the cover. Uh, I'm not. I, I don't like the use of negative space on this particular cover. I think Superman looks just a bit too chesty on it. I think there are too many words. It almost looks like it's a magazine and not a comic. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not ready to give it a D, but I think a C. I, I, I think you know it would catch my eye, but I don't know that I'd buy it for the cover. And I'm gonna just say it's kind of average, and I'm gonna give it a C. Uh, the interior art, like I said, I think. I think this is. This is an example of what was good in the 90s as far as artwork goes. I agree with you on it. I'm, I'm going to say an A. I, I, I really like the way this looks inside. And the story just has kind of an elegance to it that I really liked. And again, I never read this until you said you wanted to do this one, Mike. So uh, I always like when somebody gives me a story that I can really enjoy like this. And uh, I'm going to say an A. So overall, I'll give the book a B plus, just dragged down slightly by the cover, but not too bad. Yeah, the cover is kind of wordy, but I'm still going to be, uh, I'm not going to give it an A, I'm not going to give it a D, I'll give it a B-, minus because I do like the picture of Superman there. I can maybe do with a little less of the words, you know, words, words make my brain hurt. So, um, the interior art, uh, well, I don't even need to discuss that, that was early on, we know how I feel about that. Hi, Dan, hi, Dan, uh, see, now I got another... Another freaking restraining order is going to be issued against me. Uh, they just keep racking up. 
And uh, the whole story with, uh, you know, you, you figure out that Batman is, is the guy that's uh, ruling the Kents. Um, so A for the art, A for the story, B for the cover. So A minus overall. All right, cool. So uh, we're only about three hours into recording. Uh, do we have time enough for another book? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't know how long it's going to be once it's edited down. It's probably going to be well over two hours, though. So, uh, Bill, uh, you'll you'll save your Superman Batman book for another episode. I will save my dual Superman Batman books for another episode. Okay, and thank you, Mister Bailey, for coming back again. Oh, thank you guys for inviting me. I appreciate that. I'm sorry that the legal action had to be taken for this to actually happen, but I do appreciate the invite. <laughs> the Monzo doesn't forget, though. That's the problem. God, you know, I borrowed five bucks from him, I paid him back, and that SOB keeps saying I didn't. See, from what I heard is you didn't give him his VIG. I don't even know what that is. The interest. Okay. The interest on five dollars. The man is a billionaire. The interest on five dollars is another five dollars. Daily. Compounded daily. <laughs> Compounded. Either that or paying cannolis. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to two true freaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the two true freaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Oh, sorry, I was eating a Pop Tart. <laughs> <laughs>